and welcome to Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I am your host, Trey Whetstone, coming from Columbus, Ohio, and for this episode, I am finishing up my Giallo series with part two of the Screaming Through the Ages Giallo extravaganza, and running down the history of Giallo films, which is one of my favorite subgenres. Now, before we get into the first year of action, this episode's going to work very similarly. I will go down through the years, read off the giallos that came out that year, and, you know, make notes where I can and talk about a first-time review most of the time. Now, in this episode, some of these years are going to be clumped together just because there are so few giallos that came out later on, but we will get to that later. Now, what I wanted to start out with before we dive into 1973, if you'll remember we did leave off in 1972 last time, is a little warm-up here where I go into a topic about the genre. Well, for this particular one, I want to look into something that's pretty subjective, but it might be something that keeps people out of giallos, and I'm sure you've recognized this by now if you listen to the first part of this, but that is the naming conventions of giallos. Where did they come from? How did we get so crazy? I mean, a lot of these, if we're getting our roots in crime novels, I mean, you do have things like Ten Little Indians, and then there were none. I mean, there are some pretty catchy crime titles out there, but I don't think they go over the top completely. Giallo's, that's a different story. I think early on, we have fairly you know, straightforward titles like Blood and Black Lace, Not to say that they weren't good names, but, you know, you have The Girl Who Knew Too Much and The Laughing Woman and, I mean, Death Laid an Egg is much more in that crime novel style of a title than what we would see Giallo's come to be. One on top of the other, A Black Veil for Lisa. Not exactly outrageous. But when Argento comes out with Bird with a Crystal Plumage in 1970. I think that kicks it off. And he kind of takes a couple different pieces of the Giallo naming convention is you have an animal in it. And then you have, you know, the crystal plumage is very much a flowery term. Um, I think other things we would see used in Giallo titles a lot. Other than the animals, you've got colors, you know, you've got numbers as well. And a lot of that can be traced back to Argento. So Argento had that, and then he would come out with Cat of Nine Tails, so an animal and a number. And then you've got Four Flies on Grey Velvet, which has a number, a color, and an animal. So I think Argento is mostly to blame for the naming structures and conventions, and people went wild with this stuff. I mean, and I have to back up for a minute and correct myself, because... Bava did put out Five Dolls for an August Moon, which came out the same year as Bird with the Crystal Plumage. So there he has very much that distinct Giallo title right there. I, I don't know if it, I can't remember if it came out before or after, but um, but then you've got the other style of Giallo titles and things like Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion and The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. And... Man, those just, I think they're either going to draw you in or they're going to completely turn you off of Giallos. And I think that might be a large reason why some people don't get into them is 
these movies sound ridiculous. I mean, I know I'm going to talk about at least a couple on this episode that are just crazy. And, you know, then you get into things like, what have you done to Solange? And what have they done to your daughters? Which are really out there. Um, One of the most ridiculous is probably your vice is a locked room and only I have the key. But this is where we get into this. And you're going to see over and over numbers, animals, colors, and then you'll see just weird one-off stuff. Then you get into something like Lindsay later on when he's calling things eyeball or spasmo, and they just get out of control. You get stuff like Watch Me When I Kill, which is not very much... I mean, it's a very straightforward title. Um, The Suspicious Death of a Minor. Strip Nude for Your Killer is a crazy one. The Pajama Girl Case. I mean, come on. Um, Then you got like The House with the Laughing Windows. You've got all these just very weird titles. And I think they really fall off after we get into the 80s giallos. And yeah, there's not as many 80s giallos for sure. But that's something that's always struck me with these naming conventions. So now I went to launch in and give some of my favorite giallo titles. And I will keep this brief and just pick a few. But I think starting off, I really love the title of The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave. It's different, but it basically gives you a very eerie setup and feeling to the film before you ever watched it. Then you have Seven Bloodstained Orchids, which I've always really liked. That title um, it is very much traditional title. You've got, you know, a number, <laughs> and then you've got a plant. It's not an animal, but it's a plant. I also really like All the Colors of the Dark, just because it's such a weird sounding title. I don't know how Martino came up with that, but I love that one. The Perfume of the Lady in Black is, I think, an interesting title. And another one in that vein is The Killer Reserved Nine Seats, I think is an incredible title. I think those give you an idea of what you're getting into going into the film. And then the last one I want to talk about here is one that you're probably not sure of what you're getting into or why it was called this, The House with the Laughing Windows. And I will for sure be talking about The House with Laughing Windows later on, but I've always kind of liked that title. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. Enough of the little warm-up. Let's get into 1973. What you have here... Fragments of tissue found under the fingernails of one of your companions, barbarously murdered in the middle of the night one week ago. Our scientific analysis has traced them to this foulard, which was used to strangle Carol Peterson. If you have ever seen a scarf like this on any person you can identify, it is your duty to report it either to the police or the university authorities. I might add that no one in Perugia, either man or woman, is safe until this killer is captured and brought to justice. Okay, so 1973 is a very much a step down when we're talking about what we just did in 72 with the amount of giallos coming out. 
I also think 72 was the better year overall, but then again, I haven't seen a lot of these 1973 Giallos. In fact, I only count 11 Giallos, and that's if you add one that I'm not sure if people do consider a Giallo. Let's go ahead and go through this list. First up, we have Death Carries a Cane. Never heard of that one, but that doesn't really sound very menacing. Then you've got Torso, which is the Sergio Martino classic. I think a lot of people think that is his best film. Maybe not, I don't know. But like I was discussing last episode, it does have a lot of slasher feel. And I'm not going to go too deep into this one because Greg and Dave went into that on the recording that they sent in. So they covered Torso pretty well. I think it's very a very cool film about college kids and kind of getting in over their head and cannot recommend Torso enough. Then you got one I'm very curious about in The Flower with the Petals of Steel. And this is one that has Carol Baker in it. So, you know, Carol Baker showing up again in a non-Lindsay film. Then we have The Bloodstained Lawn, which I'm sure goes away, goes along with The Bloodstained Butterfly and The Bloodstained Shadow, but not really. They're not connected in any way. But you've got The Sex of the Witch. I can only imagine what that one is. Love and Death on the Edge of a Razor. That's pretty, uh... That's a pretty crazy title. I'd be interested in checking that one out. We've got another Spanish one in The Crimes of Petio. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but... Um, then we have Death Smiles on a Murderer, which was one just released on Arrow, I think. So that's one I need to check out. No One Heard the Scream. Which sounds interesting. And then you've got the... Last one I want to talk about here is Don't Look Now by Nicholas Rogue. Now, that is an American-made film, but it is set in Venice. And like I said before, this shares a lot in common with Who Saw Her Die by Aldo Lotto. I think this is the far superior film when comparing the two. And I think you can debate whether or not this is a giallo, but I think it fits into that mold quite nicely, especially if you compare it to Who Saw Her Die, which most do conclude that it is a giallo. So either way, if you do or you don't, I just wanted to throw that one in there just for posterity's sake. All right, and that brings me to the first time review for 1973, Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye. Okay, so this one was directed by the great Antonio Margariti, and I'm using great facetiously there, but I do like Antonio Margariti's films, some of them at least. The tagline for this one has to be read, it is, Death means nothing to a beast with nine lives. I suppose that's true, unless, you know, you've died eight other times. Then we get into the synopsis here. In a small Scottish village, horribly murdered bodies keep turning up. Suspicion falls on the residents of a nearby castle that is haunted by a curse involving a killer cat. Okay, so in this one, basically, you've got Karinga, who is played by the wonderful Jane Burke, and I think she does a fantastic job in this movie. But she comes home from school of some sorts, and this is set in Scotland, like the synopsis said, which is really cool, because we don't often get to travel outside of Italy in these giallo films. 
But Scotland is an excellent place to set this. It's in this old castle. So she returns to her family's castle. Her aunt who owns the castle is broke. Her mother lives there. Her cousin lives there. There's just a bunch of people who live in this castle. Well, basically there's a death and then something else happens to lead to another death. There's clearly some tension in this family. Most likely because of the financial situation. There's also a gorilla in this film for no real reason. But yeah, that's that's interesting. The thing with seven deaths in the cat's eye, if that sounds kind of jumbled, it's because this plot is... One, it's very paint-by-numbers. I think the plot has a lot of potential. I mean, there's something about a cat's curse, and you know, if there's a cat on your coffin then you're going to come back as a vampire or something like that, and the family members who have died come back as vampires. It's all very cool, but you really wouldn't know it from the film because it's so jumbled and doesn't do a good job of explaining anything. I really think the way it started, its setting, the basic premise, this had a lot of potential to be a great giallo. But it's just too far out of focus and never really gets into its groove. It's also not really clear, at least at first, who's related to who, who are these characters, and a lot of times when that happens in Giallos, it makes it hard to determine much of anything if you're trying to solve the mystery in the film. I also think the ending is extremely underwhelming, and one of the worst endings I've seen. I mean, it it makes sense in the grand scheme of things, sure, but it's just not a good ending at all. So, that's what we're given with Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye. It's just a jumbled up mess, and I wish it could have lived up to its potential. I don't know what went on with this movie, but yeah, it didn't really hit the mark for me. And I will say, interestingly enough, that this movie had some ties to both Italy and France when it was being made, And I think a lot of it is touching on the financial situations that were going on in Italy at the time, where the economy was in a nosedive. And then you had in France, you had the student, you know, liberation movements going on, and students were rebelling about what they were being taught and all this stuff. So there's some turmoil going on, certainly in the time. And it's said that, I don't know if it's Margariti or whoever else was involved in making this thing, That would have been their influence to making it. So that's cool. A little cool history note. But Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye. I just wish it was better. Okay, that's enough of me talking for a little while. Let's hear from our friend Bill Van Vegel over at Land of the Creeps and Phantom Galaxy podcast. Bill's got a little something to say about Giallos as he loves the genre as well. Hey everybody, it's Bill Van Vegel. I've been on this podcast before with Trey talking about the top 10 Vincent Price movies, in my opinion, and I'm sure it led to a further discussion with everybody in the podcast. And I can be found on Land of the Creeps with Greg Morgan, Greg Amortis, and Dave Dr. Shock Becker, and also on Phantom Galaxy with Nathan Bartlebaugh. And Trey is on that from time to time with Nathan. They're always coming up with new ideas, so give me a listen. Oh, shameless plug, I guess. Shameless plug. (laughs) Anyways, I see Mr. Whetstone here is finally tackling one of my creature comfort movie genres, and that's the giallo. I have a few different genres that I really love that 
when you get to a point where you're just sitting on the couch, you want something to watch, I usually either go for Hammer or Universal Monster or Giallo. And there's something about Giallo. Giallo just makes me feel warm. You know, they're interesting. They can be funny. They can be challenging. They can be over the top or they can be dead serious. And that's what I love about it because it's based on the old Italian uh, novels, the yellow novels, hence Giallo. And, you know, you get these interesting characters. You get obscure storylines. You get really weird storylines. You get a bit of supernatural here and there. You get a little bit of titillation. So, giallos are a fun, fun topic. And I'm glad you chose them, uh, Trey. So, I'm just going to go over a couple of the things that you'll probably find in any giallo. I didn't do any research for this. This literally came off the top of my head. And I'm sure they will be covered more in depth in the podcast by Nathan and the other callers that call in. But I thought I'd throw my two cents worth in. Now, what do I like about Giallo? Or what's a common theme and characteristic of Giallos? Well, there's usually an unknown hidden killer. Usually in black clothing or at least dark clothing. Leather gloves. Dark heavy boots. Often shot from the point of view of the killer. Or at least for parts of the film. Heavy breathing. You're not sure who it is. And you don't even know what sex it is. Because it could be male could be female or it could be something hiding so there's that mystique of who is the killer because really giallos take from the template of agatha christie they're a ramped up sexier bloodier agatha christie novel for the most part and you're just trying to figure it out you've got lots of suspects you've got lots of motives there's multiple red herrings it keeps you guessing a really good giallo will keep you guessing till the end and a lot of them do. And some of them, if you've watched enough of these, you pick off right away. But even if you do, you usually want to see the journey. There's lots of sexuality, lots of nudity, some TNA, sometimes just for the sake of it. But sometimes it does play in because, as we know, Italians and Europeans have a different sensibility of sexuality in terms of what's allowable and what's permissible and what's acceptable. And so in the early to mid-70s, this was pushing the envelope that the American films just weren't there yet. And you get lots of suspense. Suspenseful situations, there's family situations, could be greed, could be lust, could be over money, could be over family squabbles, could be over some underground crime issues, could be somebody owes money, could be about a family will. There's all kinds of incarnations of the giallo, and they're always an interesting one to go over, at least the ones that are worth watching. It usually involves a police serial. Uh, there's usually either the inept cops that are looking after the crime and trying to solve it, or the ones that are on the case and are good. They're just having trouble putting it together because there's usually so many different motives and so many different suspects. Uh, there are some, and almost a subgenre of giallo, but I hence to... Hence, I do not want to consider this a subgenre because Giallo itself is a subgenre, if that makes any sense. Some of them involve supernatural. And so some of them involve maybe some ghost elements, some undead, things from beyond, things that go bump in the night. They kind of play into the storylines, and some of them actually take over the storylines. And I'm sure Trey will go into some of those in his discussion, so I'm not going to go too deep in that. A lot of them are Italian. I would say roughly off the top of my head, 75% of them are Italian. Then the other 
15% would be probably Spanish. Spanish did have its own subculture of giallo films. And then the rest is a smattering of English, American. And when I say English, I mean British, American, and all other countries. Maybe Canada dipped its toe. Maybe some of the other European nations dipped their toe. But for the most part, it's Italian and with a minor in Spanish. And they're usually dubbed. And the dubbing is usually of various quality, depending upon what the audience was for the film. Oftentimes, I like to watch the subtitles just because you get the inflection, you get the body movement, you get to see what the actual intonation of the actors were like when they originally said it. But if you're going to take away anything from Giallo's, it's your bright red blood. Your bright red blood looks like it came just from the hardware store, department store, paint place. It's not going to be your good-looking blood. It's not going to be the blood that is what a doctor would see. It's more like a slasher blood, but even more bright. It's very vibrant. You know, maybe with a, a helpful hint from Herschel Gordon Lewis to kind of help them along the way with that blood. But the blood, to me, is probably the quintessential element of a giallo other than the mystery itself. Now... As in that genre as others, there are usually a few prominent directors, and I'm going to go into just a couple of them, not in depth. Again, it will be covered. I have no doubt about it. Dario Argento is probably the biggest and forefront name. Did movies like Deep Red, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, The Cat O' Nine Tales, Suspiria, Tenebrae, Opera, The Stendhal Syndrome. It goes on and on. Phenomena, a lot of them. Uh, and a lot of them are top-notch. Now, as his career winded down into the mid-90s, it was of declining returns, but they're always still a fun watch. Lucio Fulci. Lucio Fulci did a lot of horror, but a lot of other things as well, and Giallo was one of them, uh, including among them The New York Ripper, quack, 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 uh, A Lizard in a Woman's Skin, and Don't Torture a Duckling, which if you've seen, you're not going to forget anytime soon. Mario Bava, one of the first in the genre, Bay of Blood, Blood and Black Lace, Hatchet for the Honeymoon. He did a lot, as I said, in different portions of horror and otherwise. He did tip his toe into other genres. Sergio Martino. Sergio Martino did some really big ones. Torso, All the Colors of the Dark, The Case of the Scorpion's Tail, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key, The Strange Case of Mrs. Ward. All top-notch films. Well worth watching. Uh, one other one, I wouldn't say lesser, but lesser known, is Umberto Lenzi, who did Seven Bloodstained Orchids, Eyeball, Spasmo, Knife of Ice. He did a bunch more. Again, you can deep dive into these, and they will probably be discussed as the episode goes along, but I thought I'd put in my two cents worth. Now, I have a top ten list off the top of my head. And Trey, just for your own information... These are a floating list, as many of yours, depending upon the recency of when I watched it or what's kind of inspiring me at the moment, this could change next week. But just off, kind of off the cuff doing a top 10 list, this is what I come up with. And I'm not going to give any deep reviews. I'm not going to go into the critics' response or the actors, etc. I'm pretty much just going to list them off and maybe highlight one or two things. Number 10, Hatchet for the Honeymoon, Mario Bava, one of his early ones, about would-be wives getting killed. Police serial, 1970. It was kind of at the forefront of when the genre was going. Number nine, The New York Ripper. The New York Ripper was directed by Leo, Lucio Fulci. Quack, quack, quack. 
It's more bloody, it's a little gorier, it's a little grittier, it's more grindhouse-ish. It's from 1982, I believe it is, and it is a fun film, if you can call that kind of fun movie film. Uh, that movie film, eh. That movie fun, I really enjoy it. Number eight, the, one of the originals uh, in the genre. It might not be technically the first, but it's the first one a lot of people think of, Blood and Black Lace. Again, we've got Mr. Bava, 1964. Beautiful women in a fashion house getting killed. And so it brings in kind of that reputation that they have of beautiful women uh, showing a little bit of skin, getting killed, police procedural, who did it. Number six is another director I could have added to the list, but I, he didn't have extensive enough. And that was Stage Fright, also known as Aquarius, that was directed by Michael Suave. Michael Suave helped Argento in some of his earlier films. And uh, I know, I, I believe he was involved in Demons. He played an acting role. And uh, it's a good one about people trapped in a theater from a musical production. You're trapped inside of it. And you can try to figure out who did it. Really cool costumes. At number six, you've got Cat O' Nine Tales. The first of my Dario Argento films. Uh, Cat O' Nine Tales involved... A killer, a newspaper reporter, and Carl Malden is helping out to solve the crime, who plays a blind man who helps create crossword puzzles for newspapers. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that. There's a scene at the end on the top of a roof, which is pretty cool. Number five, one that I doubt that a Trey will have talked about, and if he hasn't seen it, I highly re recommend he watch, called The Killer Reserved Nine Seats, 1974. Very uh, sexy. Very interesting, some oddball characters, some unique kills. I really like the way that they go about this, about people after a party at night, everybody's dressed to the nines, go to a friend's movie, or not movie theater, like actual performing theater, and people get killed off one by one and they can't get out. Kind of the same kind of thing as demons or stage fright. I just like the quirkiness and the awkwardness of this, and the fact that a lot of people haven't seen it is why I like it. Number four, Black Belly of the Tarantula by Paolo Cavara. Again, a very sexy film, but I, what I like about it is the kill mechanism. And it's the injection of tarantula poison inside the person who dies by the killer. And, and, and there's a memorable scene involving another blind person. There tends to be quite a few blind people in these films. I don't know why. Maybe it's because they're vulnerable or adds to the mystique. I'm not sure. But it is. And it's a really good one. Number three is one that I had to debate back and forth whether it is a giallo, but this is 19, what year is this? 1973's Torso, Sergio Martino. The first half starts off giallo, people are dying in a university town, young girls. In the second half, it kind of flips to almost a proto-slasher where the girls go rent a house, they drink and they smoke and they party it up and they do what girls in their early 20s do. And then the killer comes up there and kind of they're trapped in the house. I mean, you can see direct correlations between that and slashers to come later in, later in the decade. Number two, uh, maybe a bit controversial. For longest time, it was my number one giallo. In the last year or so, I flipped it to number two, a classic of the genre, regardless of whether you like giallos or not, and that's Deep Red. Deep Red's got some supernatural elements. It's got some great acting with uh, David Hemmings and Daria Nicolini. And as, a, and as I said, it's a lot of people consider this Dario Argento's masterpiece along with another film that I will not name at this moment. <laughs> My number one all-time giallo 
is the bird with the crystal plumage. I love the bird with the crystal plumage. It was the debut film of Dario Argento. It kind of set up all of the uh, ways that a, 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 a giallo will be filmed, kind of set the archetype, set the laid the groundwork with the detective, somebody witnessing a crime. There's some sexiness to it. There is some death to it. There's lots of red herrings. There's lots of different characters. It's well shot. There's some good chase scenes. It's an absolutely brilliant film. So, what ones almost made it but didn't? I'm going to mention one that a lot of people will have on their list and they consider it as yellow. I don't quite consider it as yellow, and I want Trey to discuss this. Here, Trey, here's some homework for you for you to talk about. Bay of Blood. Bay of Blood is 1970, I'm going to say, 71, uh, and it was very much the setup of a modern-day slasher. People partying in the forest, killer comes, slashes them, kills them off one by one. You know, there's dancing and partying and nudity and such, but some really brutal kills. And so that's why I didn't, con I considered it more on the slasher end than I did the giallo end, but it is obviously one that a lot of people will, and I can't, I, I can argue with them, but I can also respect their opinion. Okay, so let's just leave it at that. Uh, just some of the others, Tenebrae, Don't Torture a Duckling, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. That's a good film. If you haven't seen that one, check that one out. The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, another really good one that I recently rewatched for Phantom Galaxy. That's a really quality film. Watch that one. Strip Nude for Your Killer is one that I check out every now and again. A little on the sleazier side, but it's got a great twist ending and a great scene with a motorcycle. So I'm going to leave it at that, let you discover that. Uh, the other one is What Have You Done to Solange? Uh, another one that gets a lot of talk about. And it's well worth a watch. Uh, there's also Spasmo. There's Eyeball. Eyeball is a bit of an interesting one if you want to check that out. Uh, I'm not going to get into it, but you can. Now, I just have a few more ones that kind of don't really fit any category, but I want to mention them. The, to me, the best modern giallo, because most giallos uh, probably end after about stage fright. Some might even argue Tenebrae, early 80s to mid 80s. One that came out only a couple of years ago is Knife Plus Heart. Check that one out because it is a modern take on the giallo genre that had it have been made 30 years ago would have fit right in. An American-influenced film that I wouldn't call giallo, but the influence is definitely there. Dressed to Kill, Brian De Palma film. And I'm not going to go into it, as I said uh, many times, but let's just say you can definitely see the connections. The Editor, the Canadian combination of Astron 6 and their comical take on Giallo is absolutely hilarious. If you haven't seen The Editor and Adam Brooke is in it, he's in half their films, almost all their films. It's fantastic. Now, here's one that's also worth a debate. This one was influenced by Giallo, but I don't know if you could actually call it a Giallo, is Frenzy by Alfred Hitchcock about a killer in England who kills with his with his tie and there's some sexual elements there's some violence there's some killing and there's a track down of the killer and let's just go with that now there's also don't look now and obviously 
a very powerful, emotional, dark, deep film that's influenced by Giallo. And the last one, which I've met, waited to the last to the end, is Suspiria. Trace that I could be honest and say what I think. I think Giallo, uh, Suspiria is crap. <laughs> the production value is great. Goblin is fantastic in the soundtrack. But I find it too disjointed. I find the characters just out there. I don't enjoy it. Colorfully beautiful, brilliant in the in the production and the shooting, but I don't care for this story at all. Uh, I have, I've seen it twice or maybe three times in my life. I really don't plan on watching it again. So that's about it. I've, th- I've probably rambled much too long. The only other aspect to Giallo is you, the good ones have a really good score. And if you don't know the band Goblin, please check them out because they are fantastic and they do a lot of genre-specific music. Anyways, I can't wait for the episode. I'll get to it whenever it comes out. Trey, have fun. I hope to be on it again at some point and let's have some fun with Giallo and Italian films in general. Ciao, baby. Ah, Bill, thank you so much for that long voicemail there. There's so many things to digest in there. First of all, the top 10 list, that is... I love to hear people's top 10 list. If you have a top 10 Giallo's list, do like Bill did and, you know, you don't have to send it in a recording, but let me know on social media or email me or something. I want to hear your top 10 Giallo list, your top 25 Giallo list. I don't care how long it is. I'm actually going to be doing my own near the end of this episode. Bill, you also mentioned the Killer Reserve 9 Seats, and it's funny you mentioned that because I will be talking about that one in just a little bit. Also, I'm not going to have this fight with you here, Bill, but we're going to... No, no, no. You are allowed to not like Suspiria, buddy, but Suspiria is one of my favorite films of all time. We're going to have to agree to disagree on that. Still, you've made so many good points in the voicemail and so many things that I have either touched on or hope to touch on coming up here. So thank you for that, Bill. I really appreciate it. You find Bill over on Phantom Galaxy or Land of the Creeps. Bill's pretty much all over the place. All right, well, speaking of the Killer Reserve 9 seats, let's transition over to 1974. corner of Africa, a certain fear rides the hot winds, a fear which has many names, black magic, witchcraft, superstition. In our country, there are still certain cults which conduct human sacrifices. The victims are unaware that they have been chosen for these mysterious purposes, but when the time comes, they are either killed or driven mad by means of potions and secret rites. Such practices, of course, take time. 
and patience. They are like a test of man's mental strength over his weaknesses. Stop! Stop! I hate you! I hate you! Please stay with me tonight. Sometimes I really don't understand you. It's as if you wanted to exclude me from your life as much as possible. What happened? I picked up the racket. Something stuck me. I can't stand such blood. Don't touch me! Sylvia! Who are you talking about? Francesca. She's dead. So 1974 was another sparse year as far as if we're talking classics. It's when the Spanish giallos started to really boom. This is the Spanish giallo boom. But there's still some good films in here. The thing is, is we're in between. Giallos have lost a lot of their popularity to where, you know, anyone will just go see any giallo. Is how I've always imagined it in the, you know, 71, 72. To now people need to get more discerning. And this is really right before... Giallos have their breakout hits, and I think the best, and when I say by breakout hits, I think they have some of the most creative and best Giallos that come out later on after the boom was already over, because if you're going to make a Giallo at that point, you have to put some thought and care into it. So let's run down the 74 list. First of all, from the trailer you had just heard, The Perfume of the Lady in Black. I haven't seen this in several years. But I remember really liking this Francesco Borelli film. So that's definitely one to check out if you haven't seen it. Then you have Copyright Crime, which doesn't sound, I mean, that sounds very bureaucratic to me. We'll see. We'll see, though. Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, which is a Paul Nashy joint. And it's funny, that one is Spanish, of course, but it goes by the alternate title of House of Psychotic Women, which you know, um, Sinat, or Severin just released that House of Psychotic Women set, and it has four films on there about, you know, I think women who have some kind of mental illness or perceived mental illness, something like that. I'm not really sure what the concept of that is. I think the title was based off of a book, which who knows if that book title came from the alternate title of this one. Five Women for the Killer, which I have not seen, sounds pretty standard. You've got Spasmo by Lindsay, which I have not seen either but I do need to see sometime soon. Then there is the follow-up to The Bloodstained Butterfly by Duccio Tessari, and that is Puzzle. I haven't seen that one either. Also curious about The Girl in Room 2A. 
What have they done to your daughters, which is a Polizio-Tecci type film, which is, you know, a police procedural murder mystery type movie. This is by Massimo Dallamano, and it's so good if you like that sort of movie. I don't think it's going to be for everyone because it's not the standard giallo, but it definitely gets into police actually doing their jobs and investigating this ring of young girls who have been drawn into some pretty bad stuff. So similar to What Have They Done to Solange, but also very different at the same time. I would highly recommend What Have They Done to Your Daughters if you haven't seen that one. Then you've got Clack You Die, which I think is the literal translation from Italian. I don't know what that is, and I'm not going to spend any time on that. So now we've got a run of Spanish giallos here. The Killer is One of Thirteen, The Killer Wore Gloves, The Killer with a Thousand Eyes, and The Fish with the Gold Eyes. Very interesting. Those giallo titles from Spain are always hamming up everything, you know. They're always taking the title to the extreme. But that's all, and that would bring me to my first time watch review, which I had watched this before Bill recommended it, because I've always been interested about this title, or ever since I've seen the title, The Killer Reserved Nine Seats. So this is directed by Giuseppe Bonatti, and the synopsis reads, A rich man gathers together friends and relatives at the abandoned theater he owns. But the party isn't fun for long, since apparently one of them is a murderer. This movie has a very cool setup with these people going to this old abandoned theater, and there's this one guy in the group that no one recognizes, and no one, you know, knows who he is. And that would obviously be, you know, is this guy supernatural? Is he a ghost? Is he just a random dude? Is he a murderer? We don't know. And I found myself, it's funny, it's called The Killer Reserve Nine Seats, and I found myself counting the people at all times you would see on the screen and seeing if I could get up to how many people there were, and it was so hard to do because of the way the scenes were set up. But this is a pretty cool movie. It has a lot of really cool imagery. The problem with The Killer Reserve Nine Seats is I think by the time we get towards the ending of this film, the deaths are no longer unique at all, and the plot just kind of gets muddled and weird. Now let's backtrack, though, and get over some good things. This has very much, you know, a Ten Little Indians type of feel, and it's set in this old theater with beautiful images. The theater looks great. There's so many cool moments, visual moments in this film. I mean, the style is just excellent. There's tons of bright colors, and the way some of these kills are executed early on and how it ties in with some of the lore really pulled me in. And the lore is excellent. I mean, they set up a really good backstory to this. And it is kind of that supernatural thriller. It does kind of walk that line. Is it or isn't it supernatural? Part of the problem, and the other part of the problem, is there's just too many characters. It's a cool idea. But you, there's no way you can keep track of all these characters. Not all, like I was saying, not all their deaths get the spotlight they deserve. And some of those deaths are just downright boring. Like, why would you even off someone in this way on screen? Now, I love the lore and I like the story. But it's not always going to make sense, of course. It is a giallo, after all. So there is that to it. But there are so many cool things that I don't want to discount and take too many of the negatives into the fact. It doesn't quite deliver on the great premise of the first act, but you know what? It's a fun time, and it's a good, it's a good giallo film. Now, this is nowhere near something you would start with, 
this is like, you know, you're 40 giallos deep and you want to check something out that's pretty cool. I like the Killer Reserve 9 seats, but it's not going to grab everyone. Now, if you're more inclined to the supernatural type stuff and the beautiful visuals and things like that, this might be for you. And it does get pretty brutal in the beginning, even if it like tails off during the end. I do like the ending, but I think some things get missed and not completely wrapped up in the ending either. But the Killer Reserve 9 seats is definitely worth a watch. I watched on YouTube, and weirdly enough, on YouTube, you have, it's mostly English, but every once in a while they'll break out into Italian. And I'm guessing that's like restored footage or something from the Italian version like they did in Deep Red. But either way, the Killer Reserve 9 seats is worth your time if that premise sounds interesting to you at all. It's not going to be top-tier giallo material, but it's really good. I really like it. All right, that is 1974. Let's move in to the next topic. Roses are red, violets are blue, but the iris is the flower that will mean the end of you. Suspiria. You can run from Suspiria. From Suspiria. Suspiria. But you cannot escape. Suspiria. The only thing more terrifying than the last 12 minutes of Suspiria. Okay, so what I want to talk about now is this idea of supernatural or paranormal giallos, and if that makes sense or not. I think one that most people point to would be Suspiria. My thing about Suspiria is... It's not really a giallo, and I will stand by that any day of the week. Now, let's break this down first. Supernatural giallo, paranormal giallo, is kind of an oxymoron, because really, these, I mean, the giallo stories are crime novels, which are most of the time grounded in reality. I mean, they might stretch a little bit of what is real and what isn't, and get a little bit into the absurd sometimes. But mostly that is what their whole mission statement is, right? These are crime stories. These are real life stories. So when you start adding supernatural or paranormal stuff in, it gets a little blurry. So for me, I'm going to break down here why I don't think Suspiria is a giallo. And mainly is, yes, you do have these killings going on, but a lot of the times, there's not an actual killer. What's killing these people is a supernatural force. It's either one of the witches or someone getting indirectly killed by one of the witches. And that's the other thing is the main villain in this are witches. They are not, you know, real life people. There's a lot of weird lore going on in this one. 
I just don't think like you can stretch it a little bit. You can say like, oh, this person's psychic and has the ability to see in the future and stuff. That stuff exists in our world. I mean, it's whether you believe it or not, it's still there and there's still people that claim that. So that's really where I draw the line with Suspiria. There's not really any kind of crime element or criminal element or serial killer or murdering spree. It's really just these witches and a lot of the times they're just killing people they don't like, but it's not really in direct ways. It's not really with traditional weapons or anything like that. It's just getting killed supernaturally for the most part. And that just does not feel like a giallo to me. Now, put that against something like Phenomena, and Phenomena, I'm going to go into some spoilers for Phenomena here. What do, I mean, what is in Phenomena that makes me think it's a giallo film? Well, we do have a very real-life killer, and yes, things get a little bit weird, and we stretch what is reality, and we maybe get a little too much of stuff you can't naturally explain in there, but I think it does an excellent job at having this criminal angle and this crime angle in it. I don't know, that's my point of view, and that's how I've always seen it. There's an actual real-life person killing someone. Yes, this one absolutely stretches the boundaries, and I would get behind anyone who says Phenomena isn't a giallo. But for me, I've always seen it as one just because we do have the real-life aspect of a lot of it. So what are some other giallos, I think, that fit the mold of supernatural or paranormal type giallos. Well, I'll tell you, if you're looking, please don't search on the internet because you just get a list of Italian supernatural horror films. You don't really get any clear answers. What you will get are some Reddit articles, and you'll get some discussions on phenomena for sure, but you're just going to see a list of supernatural Italian horror films which have nothing to do with giallos. Now, a couple others I could think of because, you know, the internet is no help, um, I think All the Colors of the Dark, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I think I remember something in there about some paranormal stuff that may or may not be there. Then you've got the Killer Reserved Nine Seats, which I'm pretty sure verges into the paranormal, but ah, I'm not even sure about that either because, you know, the plot's not <laughs> necessarily the main thing in that. But I think all of those are giallos. I don't think Suspiria is. That's my opinion. I could... Again, I could get behind if you want to say Phenomena isn't. I've just always seen it as one since we do have a real killer. But that's my stance on the supernatural giallo. I don't think it's really something that is prevalent a lot of the time when you're talking about giallos. And I think it's something that doesn't really... I mean, it's not really a focal point and it's not really something that we see a lot of. So the main thing is I don't think Suspiria is a giallo. I just don't think... It gets there, it's just an Italian supernatural horror movie, and the same would obviously go for, like, Inferno and that kind of stuff, but that's my opinion. Let me know what your take is, and if you could think of any other supernatural giallos, but I just wanted to get that quick aside in there. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and move into 1975.
All right, so we are going to go through 1975, which is the last year I will be going through by itself for these Giallos. This is the last big year for Giallos, and yeah, after this we would see much sparser amounts. There's still a lot of good stuff waiting on the other side of 1975, but there's also some pretty creative things going on in 75 as well. So let me go ahead and run down the year, and let's get into this one. Right off the top, you have Eyeball, which is an Umberto Lindsay film, and I have not seen Eyeball, just like I had not seen Spasmo, but I hear some good things about Eyeball and Spasmo, so I'm ready to check those out. Then we have Autopsy, which I haven't seen, The Killer Must Kill Again, which I haven't seen, Erotic Games of a Good Family, I'm not sure I want to see that one, that one sounds pretty weird, pretty, um, yeah, I don't... I don't really want to get into what that one is. <laughs> um, we've got some Spanish giallos here with All the Screams of Silence, A Dragonfly for Each Corpse, which is a very cool title, and The Killer is Not Alone, which is standard stuff. Then we have The Skin Under the Claws, which sounds you know, very intriguing. I'm interested in that one. We have Reflections in Black, which is another one that I have not heard of. We've got The Suspicious Death of a Minor, which is a really good one. That is a later period Sergio Martino film. And yeah, that's that's a really good one if you haven't checked that one out. It's definitely worth it. It is out there on Arrow. We've got The Bloodsucker Leads the Dance, which sounds really cool as well. Calling All Police Cars. Snapshot of a Crime. And The Police Are Blundering in the Dark. So my takeaway before we get to the last three giallos here... Or there's a lot of stuff in 1975 that I haven't heard of, but sounds cool. So I need to do some work on 1975, that's for sure. Okay, so like I said, we have three left, and one is Deep Red. And Deep Red is the Dario Argento classic, which I'm not going to give any spoilers, but I've just got to say that this is the absolute best of the giallo genre and what it has to offer. I mean, I've always called this the quintessential giallo. It is the giallo that feels the most like what you think a giallo would be, or at least that's how I've always viewed it. It's got the bright colors, it's got the good murder mystery, it's got the people, like the everyman basically, conducting their own investigation. It's got a woman and a man and dealing with those kind of roles that happen in society. You've got gruesome murders and elaborate murders, really. By the way, we were talking about the slasher genre interacting with the giallo genre. And there is one kill in this one that I know for sure had to have influenced, I think, a couple of slashers going forward at least. And those of you who have seen it will know. But this thing is just an absolute masterpiece, an absolute must-watch. This is the easiest gateway into giallos. I really think it is. You seriously cannot go wrong with Deep Red. If you watch Deep Red and you don't like Deep Red, I don't think Giallos are for you. Now, there might be some other ones that you'd get into, sure, but this is, I think, I mean, it is probably the most accessible of all Giallo films. I don't think a lot of people would disagree with that, and it is such a masterful Giallo, and to think this came, you know, after the Giallo boom, really, I mean, Argento's got a trilogy under his belt before this, and I would argue that this is leagues better than even Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which I love. 
it's just so good, and Deep Red is an absolute watch for all horror fans. I mean, I don't want to get into a huge diatribe about this one because, you know, I will absolutely be doing an Argento spotlight at some point and getting deep into Deep Red, doing the background into Deep Red, all that normal spiel. But do yourself a favor if you have not and go out and see Deep Red immediately. There's a great Arrow, Blu-ray, and 4K release out there. Yeah, I just don't know what else to say about this one. You know from the beginning, I think that this is going to be a great film, and you've got that soundtrack, that goblin score, and then you've got the weird little children's music as well, and the way this movie unfolds is just so great. And yeah, I'm just sitting here gushing over Deep Red. If you want to hear more, uh, I went into a deep discussion on Deep Red with uh, Matt and Jackson over on Father and Son Watch Horror. That's been a while ago. I was thinking that was maybe like 2020 or something, but I will link in the show notes of that episode if you want to hear a deeper in-depth discussion on Deep Red that I've done in the past. Okay, so I have two more to talk about here, and these are my first-time watches. Okay, so first up we have Strip Nude for Your Killer. Now this one was directed by Andrea Bianchi, and if you're not familiar, he had also directed Burial Ground, which I know is one of Will, who called in last time's favorite movies. So, Strip Nude for Your Killer, I know a lot of people like this. I know Greg Bazzelli likes this from Monsters in the Mosh Pit. I think there's a ton of people that like this one. For me, the thing with Strip Nude for Your Killer is it kind of, um, how do I want to go about this? I mean, I guess I want to say this is just pretty much like a softcore porn film, is what it seems like to me. There's so much sex and there's so much nudity it's probably close to the most nudity I've seen in a giallo, and I mean, it's up there with almost genre lin levels of nudity in a horror film. But before I get in any further, let me go ahead and give a synopsis of this one. A fashion model dies during a botched abortion, and the people closely connected to her are murdered one by one. Now, I love the setup, and this one takes place within this modeling agency most of the victims and the suspects and stuff are within this modeling agency they're trying to connect all the dots and figure out who's responsible and who the killer is and the police are hot on the trail of these people but like i said there's nudity every time you turn around i swear and we do have edwidge finnick in this one who i think does a great job as always i like the setup to the plot i like the you know basic premise of it and I think the plot is fine. I think the story moves along just fine in this one. My main problem is it just doesn't stick the landing, as is the case for a lot of films. I mean, endings are hard. Let's just get that out of the way. It's not easy to make a good ending, especially when you have something good building up. I also think, as is the problem with a lot of this stuff too, is once you get to the middle of this film, things start to drag, and there's just you kind of get characters mixed up and confused. There's a character who just disappears without notice halfway through the movie, and you're just like, what is happening? This character who was in this earlier on and was playing a decent part in it is just completely gone, and I have no idea why or what's that happening for. But it's not all bad. I'm not going to say that everything was all bad. I didn't like the reveal and the ending and stuff. That's that's what it is. But there's still a lot of good stuff in this one. There are some good beats in this one as you go through. I think there's definitely some things to like. 
there are Giallo fans out there who are going to absolutely love this one, and I can see why. For me, it's just something felt off about it, and it didn't necessarily hit enough to land in that upper tier of Giallos for me, or really even into that you know top 25 of Giallos that I will be doing near the end of this show. It's just one that I think is good and solid, it's fine. A little too much sex and nudity for me, and a little not enough plot. I'm not necessarily saying that I'm, you know, sticking my nose up at sex and nudity, but when it happens this much and it's just all over the place, it's just kind of, it kind of gets to you after a while. So it'd be different if this had like an outstanding plot or a story that really drew you in and wouldn't let you go, but that's not really what it has here. So that is Strip Nude for Your Killer. I would recommend this to Giallo fans, you know, once you've gone through a lot of the classics and all that, I'm sure there are a lot of you, and you can tell by my description of it whether you're going to like this thing or not. Okay, so this next one is interesting. This is Hot Off the Presses. This one is part of the House of Psychotic Women box set that Severin has put out. And it was one that I'm not sure if it was available before or not, but either way, I was able to watch a good version of this on Shudder, which all of these films are on now. And this one's called Footprints on the Moon. Or I guess it's simply titled Footprints um, some places. But this is directed by Luigi Bazzoni and Mario Finelli. And Bazzoni was the director of, you know, The Possessed and The Fifth Chord, which I have yet to see The Possessed, but I do like The Fifth Chord a good deal. The synopsis for this one reads... Alice, a young translator, finds the real world slowly merging with her recurring nightmares as she tries to solve the puzzle of her recent memory loss. I'm going to go ahead and end the synopsis there. But what we basically have here, and I will say right up front that we have Florinda Bulkin, who has been in Don't Torture a Duckling and Lizard in Woman's Skin, so several other giallos and Italian films. You also have Nicoletta Elmi, who was the little girl, and we might hear a little bit more about this later on, but, you know, she's been in everything from Deep Red to Demons to Bay of Blood, um, a lot of films. Now, with Footprints, the basic story is you have this woman who is a translator. She's supposed to show up for work, but doesn't. She has these weird dreams about spacemen, which she thinks are connected to a movie that she saw when she was younger and left a deep impression. But when she goes to talk to her boss and get yelled at for not making her appointment, she's like, I remember being there. I don't know what happened and all this stuff. Well, she finds out that she thought what she thought was like, and she's lost like three days of her memory somehow. And all traces lead her to this place called Garma, so she goes to try to figure out what happened in that time lapse. And I think that is the best part of this. You're not going to get a lot of murder. You're not going to get any lot of that. But this mystery element that drags you along and what's going to happen next is just so strong with Footprints on the Moon. And it does get a little weird sometimes with these dreams in. And I tell you, the ending of this movie is very weird, but I liked it a lot. It's just, I don't think it's what you're going to expect going in. It's a very heady, very much a think piece of a giallo. Um, both of the actresses I had just mentioned are excellent in this movie. I think they do a great job. This is my 
favorite role of Bolkins. I really think she brings it home in this. Yeah, Footprints is an excellent little giallo that's light on the blood and the kills and stuff and heavy on the mystery and trying to unlock, you know, what went on and how these events played out. So I would absolutely recommend Footprints on the Moon. If you're looking for the more violent, grittier giallo, this isn't going to be for you. If you're looking for more of a movie that you can just settle into, enjoy the mystery, and see how it unfolds, I think this one will be perfect. That is the first one I've watched in that House of Psychotic Women set, but I do recommend checking this one out on Shudder at least. I'm going to dive into those, but I don't think any of the rest of those are giallos. So, that's one hot off the presses and a newer release, at least to the Western audience to be able to buy. That's really all I want to say on 1975, so let's get into the next segment, which I want to talk about someone that I just mentioned, and that is Edwidge Finnick, who I think is one of the premier stars in the Giallo films. She's been in a ton of Giallos, including All the Colors of the Dark, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key, The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, Five Dollars for an August Moon, Strip Nude for Your Killer, The Case of the Bloody Iris, and I think that's it as far as Giallos go. She's also had a part in Hostel 2, and a movie called uh, Phantom of Death by Ruggiero Deodato, and I really like Edwidge Finnick when she's portraying these characters. She does such a good job of acting, I think I'd be remiss to not mention her, just because of how good she is and how renowned she really is in the giallo realm and very well respected i mean probably one of the front and center leading ladies in all of giallo so if you haven't watched a lot of edwidge fennec i think you need to do yourself a favor and go and do that but in the meantime i want to play this voicemail coming in from ian urza and we had heard from ian on the last show and he is kind of a giallo super fan And Ian wanted to call back in and talk about some directors and actors. So I thought this was a good chance when I'm talking about Bulkin and when I'm talking about Fennec and all that to play Ian's voicemail and kind of let Ian go over the big name directors and actors in Giallo films. So let's take give that a listen. Hey, Trey Whetstone, Ian Urza here again. Um, I just figured I was like, you know what? I want to send Trey another uh, recording because um, <laughs> I was like, you know, this is my favorite subgenre, um, and I just wanted to talk about it a little more. And I kind of wanted to give you a hierarchy of Giallo directors and uh, actors. And I think I'm hoping this doesn't take me too long because I I hope I have these names and the movies they've done. Uh, memorized enough to where I don't have to hesitate at all. But um, so I'll start with uh, some some directors. Let's start with my top ten Giallo directors. And with this, I'm not really including anything that they directed that could be considered horror. I'm just doing Giallo. So for example, with talking about Lucio Fulci, I'm not going to be talking about the Beyond Argento. I wouldn't be talking about Suspiria, just for example. So number ten, I have Luigi Bazzoni. He directed Footprints on the Moon, uh, the great black and white sort of noir giallo, The Possessed, and The Fifth Chord, which is another great one featuring the some great cinematography by Vittorio Storaro. Number nine, I have Ruggiero Diodato, who didn't start directing too many giallos until later in his career, but I love Phantom of Death. Uh, Dial Help is really cool, 
and the washing machine is just a really weird and sort of crazy uh, erotic thriller type giallo movie. Number eight, I have Luciano Arcoli, who directed three movies, all starring his wife at the time. I think they actually stayed married until he died. Uh, Susan Scott, a.k.a. Nieves Navarro. Uh, she's also well known for her role in the big gun down as well, the spaghetti western. But she was in all three movies. It, it is forbidden photos of a lady about suspicion, death walks on high heels and death walks at midnight, which I would say is his masterpiece. Uh, then I move on to number seven, Umberto Lenzi, who kind of was an early director of Giallo movies. And I think I stated in my previous recording that he, he directed these sort of jet set noir type Giallos that focused on blackmail and, and sort of, uh, deception, uh, between a few people early on. And they all, a lot of them starred Carol Baker. He made four movies with Carol Baker, Knife of Ice and A Quiet Place to Kill are probably my favorite of those two. But in the 70s, he also made some more slasher-centric ones, such as Eyeball and Seven Bloodstained Orchids, which would be my favorite of his. Number six, I have Limberto Bava, who started making giallos more in the 80s. Uh, Macabre, I don't know if you... I guess you could consider that a giallo, but A Blade in the Dark, I certainly would consider. That's one that gets better for me every time I watch it. But then later in the 80s and even into the early 90s, I think he did some movies like Body Puzzle, uh, Delirium Photos of Gloria, or Joya, depending on the Italian-English uh, pronunciation, and uh, You'll Die at Midnight. Number five, I have Massimo Delamano, who's a name who often gets overlooked when you're talking about Giallo movies. Um, this is a guy who is just a great filmmaker in general i mean you're talking about the guy who did the cinematography for a fistful of dollars and for a few dollars more he directed a black veil for lisa which is considered a giallo i've actually never seen that one um but he did what have you done to solange which is one of my top five favorites what have you done to your daughters and unfortunately he died before he could direct rings of fear which i think would have been a better film and a little bit more well known had he directed it as it stands it's an okay film uh number four i have mario bava sort of the the inventor of the Giallo movie, uh, in a way, and a guy who directed a few pretty good ones, uh, Bay of Blood being my absolute favorite. And at number three, I have Lucio Fulci, who sort of, his his Giallo movies are all kind of different. Um, I'd say he has three masterpieces, including my favorite of all time, which is a really sort of mean-spirited, nasty movie called The New York Ripper. <laughs> um, and uh, The Psychic, which is a masterful psychological mystery Giallo um, he even started directing some of the early, in the late 60s, one on top of the other, a.k.a. Uh, Perversion Story. And number two, I have Sergio Martino. I mean, you know, can't say too much more about him. He combined sort of the, the psychological stuff within the female-fronted giallos, that idea of the, you know, making the protagonist go crazy with some uh, more of the sort of nasty murders that D uh, Dario Argento was uh, trying to do. And then, of course, number one, Dario Argento, <laughs> who else? The guy who's still directing Giallo movies to this day and started directing them in 1970. I mean, I don't know what more you can say about Dario Argento. Several masterpieces in his filmography. My personal favorite is Phenomena, which I do consider a Giallo, even though it has a basis in the supernatural uh, in some ways. And now what I want to do is what I want to, I want to move on to the actor and actress Giallo list. Now, before I start on sort of 
I mean, obviously, you know, actor and actress, I don't really care which term you use, but I get to say in terms of men in Giallo movies, there aren't many, this isn't really a male dominated genre. When you think about it, they usually have different people playing the main characters, different people playing the cops. Uh, three of the, the the Italy's biggest box office draws at that time weren't in many of these movies. Tomas Milian was in a couple of them. He was in Don't Torture a Duckling and Don't Torture a Duckling and The Designated Victim. Not a particularly good Giallo movie, in my opinion. Uh, Franco Nero fifth, it was in the Fifth Chord. Uh, uh, Fabio Testi, who's probably the other sort of big box office draw was in What Have You Done to Solange and Rings of Fear later on. But you don't usually think of men when you think of this genre. Um, before I get started on the top 10 for this, I'm just going to mention quickly Nicoletta Elmi, who is the little sort of redheaded girl with the freckles who was in Deep Red. She was in Bay of Blood. She was in Footprints on the Moon. Later, when she was in her 20s, she was in Demons. And, of course, she kind of had a bigger role as sort of the the central character that sort of gets everything going in the movie Who Saw Her Die. Uh, and then uh, I'll start with my top ten list now, but I wanted to include Nicolette Almy because she was a child actress and she was in a lot of these movies. Number ten, I have Mimsy Farmer, star of uh, Dario Argento's Four Flies on Grey Velvet and Perfume with the Lady in Black. Uh, number nine, I have Claudine Auger, who's a French actress. Most people would recognize her for playing Domino in Thunderball. She also played big roles in Giallo movies like Bay of Blood and uh, Black Belly of the Tarantula, one of my personal favorites. Uh, number eight, I have Marina Malfatti, who was in Seven Bloodstained Orchids and All the Colors of the Dark, among other things. Number seven, Dagmar Lasander, Iguana with the Tongue of Fire, Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion. And there's another one. Oh, oh, The Laughing Woman. That's right. The Laughing Woman, which is kind of an interesting sort of erotic thriller again, uh, Giallo, that was made, I think, in the late 60s. Number six, I have Susan Scott, a.k.a. Nieves Navarro. As I stated before, she starred in all three of Luciano Arcoli's Giallos because she was married to him. She was also in So Sweet, So Dead, Death Carries a Cane, and she played a good part in All the Colors of the Dark as well. I think she played Edwidge Fennec's sister, uh, sister's character in that movie. Number five, one of my two Giallo crushes, uh, Anita Strindberg, who was in three of Sergio Martino's movies, uh, Case of the Scorpion's Tail, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key and All the Colors of the Dark. Later, she would star in Murder Obsession in the early 1980s. I think that that was her last movie, uh, last movie appearance uh, in general, not just in a Giallo movie. And she was also in, I think, Tropic of Cancer. There may have been a couple others she was in, but those are the ones I know her for. Number four, I have Florinda Balkin, Don't Torture a Duckling, as uh, Machiara, the witch woman in that. Uh, also in Footprints on the Moon, uh, uh, Lizard in a Woman's Skin as well, the Fulci movie. There's probably more that she was in, but those are the ones I can name for now. Uh, number three, Barbara Boucher, Don't Torture a Duckling, Black Belly of the Tarantula, Star of Amok and probably uh, many others, but those are the ones, again, I can think of right right off the bat. Uh, number two, Daria Nicolodi, uh, Dario Argento's uh, muse of sorts. Uh, she was in basically all the movies, a lot of the movies he did, obviously uh, Opera, Deep Red, 
well, Inferno, that's not a giallo. Tenebrae, that's another one that I can think of. She was also in some uh, movies directed by other people as well. She was in Delirium uh, Photos of Joya, uh, directed by Lamberto Bava as well. Uh, number one, of course, my other biggest giallo crush, probably one of my biggest uh, celebrity crushes in general, Edwidge Fennec. Uh, your vice is the locked room, only I have the key, all the colors of the dark... Uh, Strange Vice, Mrs. Ward, any basically anything, any of those films that Martino was making, and then um, also she was in what is it, Case of the Bloody Iris? Uh, that's another one. Uh, Strip nude for your killer. So she was kind of the undisputed queen of this genre in a way. But those are the ones I, I can certainly think of, and I hope I've given you, you know, enough to sh tell you who the players were in a lot of these movies, whether it was the filmmakers or the people in them. But I do think it's unique that within these movies, a lot of the people, you know, a lot of the stars were women. This was a women sort of fronted genre. And you could kind of say the same thing about the slasher movie uh, in a way. Uh, I think that they because, you know, the term final girl and everything, it usually ends up being a woman you follow all the way to the end. So that's unique uh, in the in the film landscape and culture at the time. I think, you know, in the early 1970s and everything, I think that that was probably different for the time. And. Uh, you know, I hope that this was just as uh, good and insightful as a recording as the first one I sent. Uh, thanks for letting us uh, send these in, uh, Trey. Thank you so much, Ian. And I just want to take this opportunity. I loved hearing from some other members of the community on these, whether that was Greg and Dave over at Monsters in the Mosh Pit and Will over at Shapes and Shadows, or you've got Bill Van Vegel earlier in this episode, and you've got couple call-ins from me and Urza, and hope to maybe have one more later in this episode. But I really appreciate these call-ins and adding some more flavor to the show. Now, as far as what Ian's saying, like he, like I said, pretty self-explanatory, went into a lot of the directors, his favorite directors, and if you have a top 10 Giallo directors, if you have, you know, top 10 of your actresses, actors, and Giallos, absolutely send those over on social media or wherever, and um, I'd love to see that. But thanks once again. That kind of is what I wanted to look at here, is take a look at some of the more personal aspects and the people involved in these films. All right, let's cruise on along, because we're going to be doing these fast and furious from now on. We're going to take a look at 1976 and 1977. Watch me when I kill. Prepare yourself for shock after shock, for horror beyond belief, and spine-tingling suspense that never lets go. Still in here. to witness a shattering adventure in total fright. 
The sheer terror, the menacing suspense that awaits you when you see Watch me when I kill Watch me when I kill So 76 and 77, like I was saying, are definitely down in terms of volume. Them put together did not add up to even 1974's output. We've got this downturn, but that doesn't mean we're out of good ideas. Let's break down 1976 first, which I do not have a review for this time. Just because I've only got a list of three Giallos here and I've already seen one. So let's talk about 76 first. And that year we had Plot of Fear, which I haven't seen, but I do want to see. The Spanish Giallo, Death Haunts Monica. And then we had what is, you know, hands down the best of 1976, which is Pupiavati's The House with the Laughing Windows. And if you haven't seen this one, you would be forgiven because it's really hard to find. I believe when I tried to find this one last time, I had to go through certain other channels or back channels to find this one. I do think it's available in Region 2 discs, so if you do have a region-free player, you might be able to pick this one up. But House with the Laughing Windows follows that age-old tale that we've seen of an artist going to a town that they've never been to before to work on or restore something, and that's what we get here. And in this one, we have... This younger restorer who is commissioned to go save a fresco that represents the suffering of St. Sebastiano, which was painted on the wall of a local church by a mysterious long-dead artist. Now, first off, this fresco is extremely creepy, and yeah, it's once you see more and more of that revealed, it's pretty creepy to look at as it is, you know, by itself. Um... I think House of Laughing Windows is such an underrated Giallo, and I think it's that way because it's not really readily available. But so many Giallo fans, if you talk to the hardcore Giallo fans, they love this one, and I am no exception. The House of Laughing Windows is an excellent movie, and if there's any way at all that you can, I urge you to go check this one out and go find this one. Because it's definitely worth a watch. I mean, it's one of my favorite Giallos of all time. Post-production note here... The House of the Laughing Windows is actually on YouTube. I couldn't remember where I watched it, but it is out there on YouTube if you want to check it out. So that's about all I have for 76. Now moving into 1977, we've got Death Steps in the Dark, Crazy Desires of a Murderer, Nine Guests for a Crime, The Eyes Behind the Wall, which I like the sound of The Eyes Behind the Wall, and then you've got... The Pajama Girl Case, which I have not seen, but that one has been released by Arrow, and I definitely want to see that one as soon as possible. Just haven't got to it yet. 
Then you have Lucio Fulci's masterpiece in my estimation. Now, I'm not as big on Fulci's non-Giallo films as others, but The Psychic is just my favorite of his films. I think it is so underrated when people talk about Fulci. I think it is a fantastic Giallo and a fantastic movie in general. If you haven't seen The Psychic, you absolutely need to check that one out. In this one, the synopsis is... A woman with psychic powers has a vision of a murder that took place in a house owned by her husband. And then, I love the tagline for this one, which is, Suddenly and without warning, it's tomorrow, and you're dead. But I hope that sells it for you, because the psychic is absolutely worth checking out. It is a fantastic movie, it's a great giallo, and yeah, yeah, it does have a little bit of psychic elements in there, that's kind of what I was talking about earlier with the supernatural stuff. But it's absolutely through and through a giallo. That brings us to the last one here and my first time watch for 1977, which is Watch Me When I Kill. So this one was directed by Antonio Bido, and Bido did not direct very much. He did another one, which I'll be talking about in the next year, and then what looks like a Top Gun ripoff and not a whole lot else. So... I like the tagline for this one as well, which is, When I go berserk, you're better off dead. And the synopsis reads, A pharmacist is murdered, and a woman happens to see the culprit leave the scene. She soon finds herself being stalked by the killer. This one has an interesting title in Italian, which is The Cat with the Jade Eyes, and there's, you know, in the UK it was known as The Cat's Victims, so that's very weird seeing those cat-related stuff with this. And by the way, the psychic has a really good Italian name too. I think it's the Seven Black Notes of Death or something like that. So that's a really cool name, uh, much better than the psychic. But what we have here is a very gruesome kind of film. I mean, some of these kills are absolutely brutal, but basically a woman witnesses a murder happen in a store. I think it's a pharmacy when she's going in there. And the killer apparently knows who she is, so she's been tangled up in this plot of victims who otherwise seem to have some kind of relation or are, you know, involved in the same thing. And there's an escaped convict from jail who has, you know, a lot of these people were involved with his murder trial, so he's the prime suspect. And you've got, you know, him doing his own investigation, you've got a police officer, I think, that gets involved in this, and this is, it's definitely worth a watch, I would say. A couple things I want to say about this that aren't necessarily original, I mean, I'm fine with the plot and the reveal in this, it, it's nothing, like, revolutionary, but it just kind of seems like it comes out of nowhere, the reveal part, as we get to the end of this film. And then, you also have it's almost stealing from deep red in a couple of ways. I mean, we have, first of all, we've got a song that is a great song, but it's very much riffing off of deep red. And I think we would see something similar with his next film, which weirdly enough, he got Goblin to do the main theme for that one. So it makes sense. But I will say, and the other thing about the deep red is there is a bathtub kill scene, but there are a couple of very brutal kills in this movie one involving an oven which is hard to watch I mean that I think is what's going to get you the most mileage out of this thing um 
is there some very grisly and gruesome murders in this? So if that's what you're looking for out of your giallo, you're going to get that here. Now, when it starts to unravel and unfold, I think a lot of people like the way this one reveals itself and the reveal at the end, but it's not necessarily going to be what you think, and it's pretty smart for Giallo. It just didn't necessarily work for me like it has for some others, and that's okay. That's why I think, you know, I have no problem recommending this to people because I liked it a lot due to just its gruesomeness. And I think the plot's going to work better for a lot of other people. So Watch Me When I Kill is definitely one to check out. I don't know if I'd put this at the top of your watch list, but this is one of those, you know, once you've dove into Giallos and gotten into them, definitely one to check out. Okay, so I've got another voicemail here, and this one comes in from Dark Mark and I feel like listeners who have listened to other podcasts within this community group would know who Dark Mark is, and Mark wants to take a little bit more of an interesting angle to his voicemail, and he's going to talk about the music of Goblin, specifically relating to the movie Tenebrae. Trey Whetstone at Screaming Through the Ages podcast. Hey, how are you, buddy? This is Dark Mark, and um, I'm here to talk some Jalo. Well, more like Jalo music. Um, when I first started watching Jalos, I heard lots of cool music going on, especially a lot of synth, a lot of synth sounds. And um, looking into it further, I discovered this band called Goblin. So I'm going to talk a little bit about them. Goblin, it's an Italian prog rock band, and they've done a lot of film scores. They worked a lot with Dario Argento. They first composed Deep Red with him. I know that's one of your favorites, Stray. It's a great one to start off. Um, Argento originally had hired a pianist, Giorgio Gaslini. Uh, he was a jazz pianist in Italy, um, but he wasn't happy with the result. So actually, Argento tried to get Pink Floyd to do the film score for the soundtrack, but um, that didn't work out as well. So he asked Goblin, they were kind of a local group. They were called Cherry Five at the time. And um, so they said yes. They started working on the soundtrack. They turned in some a couple of tracks overnight. Uh, Argento was impressed and... Then they released their soundtrack and it became really popular. And at that point, they changed their name to Goblin because they didn't want to get confused with their other brand of their original music. Um, three of the tracks on Deep Red are still Gaslini's as well. Um, they did a bunch of soundtracks with Argento. Suspiria was the next one I think they did in 1977. And that one, I think, helped build on their fame. He, uh, Argento, and I'm sure you're going to talk about this at some time. Maybe not. It's not really uh, Jalo, but um, Argento helped finance Dawn of the Dead, Romero's Dawn of the Dead, and he wanted international releasing rights. So he released it as a movie called Zombie, and he asked Goblin to do the music for that as well. So the international has a lot of Goblin score in it. I think Argento kept three of the tracks and then he used um, some free music that he had somewhere else from a library. Anyhow, Goblin is this band. They are still around today. They've had a bunch of different people rotating in and out of their um, group. 
and they're still actually touring. They still, I think their latest album was released in 2018. And like I said, they're kind of a prog rock band, lots of electronic going on, electronic music. Um, They had some turnover and eventually around the time that Tenebrae was going to come out, Argento asked them to get back together and three of the founding members got together and they did the Tenebrae soundtrack. It was released under their name, like uh, their individual names, Uh, Claudio Simonetti. He's He's the keyboard player, the synth player. Fabio Pignatelli, I think is his name. Um, He's the bassist, and they all play percussion as well. And Massimo Morante, he's the uh, guitar player, and also percussion as well. So what I'd really like to talk about is Tenebrae, because that theme is kind of crazy. So let's get into that. So when I first heard the themed Tenebrae, uh, theme is just like a little melody of music that would go in the movie. Sometimes it's like a main theme that kind of unifies the whole movie, kind of gives you the feel of the movie. It could be for a specific character or something like that. Anyhow, this first theme, rhythmically, it always got me. I could not figure out what was going on with this theme. So I actually sat down and I kind of listened to it and I wrote, transcribed it and um, so I could talk about it a little better um the main theme has like this five bar phrase and it's which is kind of odd for music usually they'll have four bar phrases or maybe six or eight 12 bar phrases something more even numbered um and in this phrase there's four eighth notes followed by an eighth rest and it really kind of gets you out of the rhythm a little bit. It's kind of hard to follow what's going on. Um, Let's hear. So I put this score in four, four time, which means um, there's four beats in a measure. And that's how I came up with the five measures. Uh, Halfway through, you get this, um, well, it starts off with a timpani roll, and then it halfway through you get another drum beat, and that drum beat comes in with the timpani comes in halfway through those five measures, so it's um, two and a half measures. So if you really wanted to think about it, you could it almost feels like a downbeat, like one. So you could almost think about it as two bars, and then a two four bar, then a two four bar, and another two bars. Um, but it splits it right in half but if you keep the count going you'll eventually get back to beat one whenever the five bars start over again i'll i'll count along with it this time one and two and three and four and one two and three and four and one and 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 it repeats right here And at this point, a second synth comes in and it kind of has, it has the same rhythmic phrase, one and two and, and four and one. So you can hear how that um, rhythm kind of, it gets you off. And then at the beginning, you get back up to one and halfway through, whenever I hit on beat three, that's when you get that big, strong hit again. So that's like right two and a half measures in. Um, so yeah, the second synth comes in, it happens three times, uh, the third time another synth comes in 
and uh, it just kind of repeats the same rhythmic phrase. It goes right with the first one, and it has little, um, just more of a melodic line, a couple more notes. Uh, yeah, I love that bass line coming in uh, the second time through. And that third time, I think that's a mini Moog that comes in with the, uh, that's a synthesizer that comes in on the very end there, uh, repeating, just doubling the melody. And then at this point, we're going to get into the last kind of melody. Then they hit the Z minor chord and there's a drum break. This is mostly in D minor. They do throw in uh, a B minor chord, which is um, not from this key, but then they go to B flat. And uh, I guess, if anything, I'd call it D Aeolian because the, there's an A minor chord in it. So there's no, they don't put the C sharp in for the five chord. Anyhow, that's just some musical technical jargon if you're interested in some of that. And uh, I have the score. I kind of wrote it out. Maybe I'll give it to Trey somewhere so he can kind of look at it. And uh, if anybody else wants to try to help me make sense of this, um, I'm sure they didn't write that with all that in mind. It's just a analysis after the fact, but we do that with movies. We do that with music. It's just fun to look at some of this stuff and see what makes them tick. So Trey, thank you so much for having me on your show. I love your show and uh, happy Halloween. Thanks a lot for that, Mark. I appreciate you listening and for sending that in. And that was an angle I definitely wasn't going after mainly. So I really appreciate having that context there. As far as where you can find Mark, you can, you know, the place that I know of and um, Mark, just uh, let me know if there's somewhere else. But I've always followed Mark over on Twitter at Mark underscore Longfield. That is L-O-N-G-F-I-E-L-D. So you can follow Mark over there and... Mark's a good follower on Twitter, so check him out. All right, we have listened to Mark's voicemail, so let's move in now and get back to our year breakdown with 
keep looking for a motive for her death. You know, a woman was murdered here. The same way your daughter was could be the same one. Certainly the person writing must be crazy, all right. But it's possible that it's the same one. And for some obscure motive, he started to kill again. More than one person in the village has lost patience with you. The police will question me, and I... No, don't worry about it. Have you any reason to? That woman's very bad, you know. Why do you say that? She practices strange rites in her house. I think she used to blackmail clients in some way with those seances she held. So in 78 and 79, we once again have a smaller slate. Now, 77 and 78 are pretty comparable when it comes to number of giallos. 79 is much more in line with 76, but we're definitely falling off at this point. Let's look at 1978. So in 78, we've got Hotel Fear, which I do want to see, but I haven't, and also The Sister of Ursula, which I want to see. Um, Red Rings of Fear, which I also want to see. I haven't seen a whole lot from these two years, as you're going to find out. Um, Cock Crows at 11, The Perfect Crime, and the Spanish film Trauma, which I hear is a real doozy, but I have not seen that one either. The last film and the one that I'm going to do pretty much my last first time traditional Giallo review, I'll have a couple of the newer Giallo review when we get way back down the road, but this is the last like traditional of these I'm doing. So let's go ahead and set up this one, which is The Bloodstained Shadow. This was also directed by Antonio Bito. This is the one I was saying we would get more from in a little bit. The synopsis reads, A schoolgirl was murdered seven years ago, and the case was never solved. Now the murderer seems to be back. What we have in this one is, and I really like the characters in this first and foremost. I really do. I like our... Um, main male lead, and I like his love interest. I really like those characters, and that's a draw for me. Another draw was this thing is set in Venice, again, which anytime, it never gets old if you set your film in Venice. You're going to get this beautiful scenery, beautiful background and setting. It's awesome. What's basically happening is Stefano is back to see his brother, uh, Don Paolo, who is a priest living in Venice, and... Again, there was this strangling years before, which you see, I think, in the opening scene of the movie. And that kind of is very jarring. You don't really know what's going on, but you'll figure it out later. But what we have are these bunch of kind of shadier members of society starting to get killed. And now the whole thing is Stefano trying to figure out who the killer is because he's worried about him and his brother and worried about their lives and their safety. And really what we have here is a really well-put-together giallo. I think in terms of story and everything, it takes a step up from Watch Me When I Kill. 
but it's not a huge step up from that film. I mean, I like both of them. The Like I said, the characters are great in this. I like the plot. It does... Maybe I would have liked a little more elaboration and explanation as we get into the ending of this movie. But, you know, it's still a really good movie. I like The Bloodstained Shadow a lot. Um, I'm not going to get into much of what happens. I want to stay as spoiler-free as possible. But Bloodstained Shadow is absolutely one to check out. And this is this one and Watch Me When I Kill are, again, those ones that once you're kind of getting deep into the giallos and you really love them or really like them, these are ones to check out maybe a little later. But they're both really good. So those are definitely both recommendations for me. Moving into 1979, we have a group of five films, and I have, haven't seen any, and I don't know if I've even heard of any of these. We've got Atrocious Tales of Love and Death. We've got Giallo, Venetian style. Play Motel. The Sky is Falling, which is a Spanish Giallo. And then Killer Nun, which I feel like could be one of any number of movies that were coming out around this time. So that's all for 79, 78 and 79. That's the only one I've seen is The Bloodstained Shadow, and that was a first watch this time. So the well is kind of drying up. Next up, when I get to my next set of years, we're going to be talking by decades. So we'll go the 80s, the 90s, the aughts, um, and then the neo Gialli. So that's all I have on these. Let's move into the next segment. Okay, next up is a segment I like to call I Only Drink on the Job where I'm going to look a little bit and just give a broad overview of police in Giallos. I have a few particular examples that I've been watching throughout this process to kind of highlight what I'm talking about, but most of the time, cops don't play a very competent role in Giallos, and I think you see the same thing in Slashers, or they're just not around in Slashers, but the police hardly ever solve anything in these except for the ones like what have they done to your daughters where it's focusing on the police procedural part of things oftentimes the police will work with the amateur sleuths to try to solve crimes or they certainly won't impede progress on an investigation that's being done by you know a painter or a composer or anything like that they also don't often solve anything i mean if they're there, they're probably there to, you know, play a part of asking questions and all this stuff and never doing anything to further the the investigation or solve the crime. It's almost always our protagonists that are tasked with solving things. Now, I wanted to give a couple of examples of this, and the reason why I was saying, you know, I only drink on the job, so in the film Tenebra, which is a Dario Argento classic, and I'm going to talk about Tenebra in a little bit, but this one kind of satirizes the police in Giallos. When someone offers the detective a drink in this one and says, oh, I'm sorry, you on the job, he replies with something like, oh, I only drink on the job. So that's giving you a pretty good glimpse of what cops are like in these Giallo films. Argento is full-on tearing down how police are involved in giallos in this movie. At one point, you know, there, this plot involves a writer of, like, crime stories. And at one point, the detective says, you know, I never guess the killer in the mystery novels and all this stuff. And so right there, you know, 
he's telling him, look, I'm a detective, but I never guess what's going on in these mystery novels. And that's, I think that's kind of an allusion to, you know, these giallos are the new form of those mystery novels, and the police are completely clueless. And then on top of that, you know, he says something like, you know, remember that you write stories, but the detective investigates real murders. So that's all pretty comical, especially how that one plays out and how the police factor into it. Um, but that's Argento taking a little stab at, like, why are police just completely helpless in these giallos? And the one I just talked about, the bloodstained shadow, we have a scene where our main character has is leaving um, the woman that he is sleeping with, and, you know, he just got done sleeping with her. And he's passing these cops and says hi to them or whatever. They're on a boat. They're out investigating. And they say something to the effect of, you know, the ones telling him, oh, he's with this woman. And, you know, seems a little weird to me that he'd be leaving her to stroll around during the day. You think he's maybe like, he basically makes the comment of, oh, what is he, gay or something? And I'm like, this is the most ridiculous conversation I've ever heard. But... That one where portraying cops is like they're just gossiping and they're sitting there saying these like rude things about people and they're not doing or helping with anything. I mean, they're actually taking a break from their search and their shift when there's a murderer loose in Venice. So that's just completely ridiculous. That was a completely ridiculous scene, but it seems more and more like maybe that is poking fun at the police in here or maybe not. Maybe it's just Giallo stuff because... Giallos tend to be racist, Giallos tend to be all this other stuff, and I'm not going to make any bones about that, you know, it's, it is what it is for these movies, and I'm not going to love them any less, but some of the things you hear in these are just a little weird. Let's move into a couple earlier examples, if we go back to the girl who knew too much, the police at least ask her to stop investigating on her own. The detective, you know, at least seems more competent, or at least on the surface, but the detective is still letting our main character do the legwork and investigate what's going on with the supposed murder in that movie. So really, even early on, we've got that trope where, yeah, maybe he's telling her, don't investigate, don't do this, don't do that, which you don't see a lot, surprisingly, in these movies. But he's still enabling her to go around and search. Also, in Strip Nude for Your Killer, they allow details to be broadcast about the connections between all the murder victims on the news. And there's a lot of that throughout this movie. Like, there's news coverage, and maybe they're more frank in Italy, but I don't think that would fly here in the United States when there's an active investigation going on. That it's just out in the media that, hey, these are all connected, they all work at the same place, and all this stuff. It just doesn't seem realistic to me at all. So, and those were just some examples that stood out to me this last time of watching through some of these movies. I've seen a ton of these giallos, so there's just so much inept police work and just incompetent police all throughout giallos. And I don't think you're going to have a very good light of the Italian justice system when you get done with these movies, but... Whatever, maybe it's more exciting to let the amateurs do the work. All right, let's move in to the next set of years, and right now I'll be talking from 1980 through 1989. <laughs> 
your books, Mr. Neal. The book deals with a murder committed with an old-fashioned open razor, right? This girl, too, was killed with a razor, and your book's pages stuffed into her mouth. Can I ask you something? If someone is killed with a Smith & Wesson revolver, do you go and interview the president of Smith & Wesson? Peter, Peter, you can't let me down now. We're within two days of making a deal. Please, stay just until Friday. My life is in danger. There's no deal in the world worth risking my life for. Not anxiety or fear, but freedom. You wrote those words, page 46. Freedom to strike again, Peter. Listen, don't hang up. We have to talk. You told me how, Peter Neal. You and me together. We've just begun. Jesus. Okay, so the 1980s, there was still a decent amount of giallos coming out, but they were much more spread apart, and, I mean, really we're seeing the genre kind of dry up at this point. But don't worry, there's still a lot of really good ones, I think, in here. So let's start out for 1980, and again, I have no more first-time reviews for the 1980s. Um, I would just be going down through and talking about any of the ones that I know, or anything like that. So in 1980, the only one we have is Mystery of the Cursed House. I don't know anything about that one. Over to 1981, we've got Murder Obsession, which I don't know. The Secret of Seagull Island, which sounds interesting. I'm surprised that's not a Spanish giallo. You've got Madhouse, which is an okay movie. Um, Madhouse didn't really click for me, but it's a decent enough giallo. And then you have Nightmare, which I did not really like at all. Nightmare is definitely not my favorite giallo. 1982, we've got The Scorpion with Two Tails, which was Martino's bid to get back into the giallo. I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's not great at all. Um, I'd love to hear if someone has seen it and they like it. I might check it out one day, but as of right now, I've just heard it's not a great movie. You've got The New York Ripper by Fulci, which... I'm okay on a middle of the road, just like I am with most of Fulci's stuff. I don't love it. It's it's fine. It's very mean-spirited, and that's okay. I mean, it doesn't necessarily turn me off of everything, but a lot of people love the New York Ripper. If you're looking for a much more violent and, you know, Fulci-esque Giallo, the New York Ripper would be, I think, the height of what he did in Giallo's with, you know, infusing the elements of his other films into it. Killing of the Flesh, which I've never heard of. And then we have Tenebra, and Tenebra is, it's by far the best Giallo of the 80s. And in my opinion, I mean, it's right up there with Argento's other masterpieces. I think it deserves to be one of those. And I think it's getting some more talk these days, but I feel like that one's always been left a little on the outside when I feel it's right up there with some of his greats. In my stance, and I think I've said on the last episode, that Tenebra is basically the scream of the Giallo, except I think it does it a little better than Scream does as far as being a true 
satirization or, you know, commentary on the genre. It does it with little subtle ways, like I was talking about earlier with the police stuff, or it does it with our writer that is our main character in this movie. Essentially what we have is a writer coming over to Italy for some kind of press tour, I believe. And get this, his agent is John Saxon, so that's awesome. And his assistant is Daria Nicolodi. So there's a really good cast in this. And just to see how this one unfolds and how it talks about the genre itself. But he, sorry, he comes in and he writes all these grimy mystery novels, kind of more, you know, risque giallo type novels. And there's murders going on and the police are questioning him because it's his novels and all this and they're trying to get leads. And that's basically what he gets himself into is this tangled web when he's going to Rome, I believe. But what happened with this, so this is a weird story, and I'll go into this more whenever I do a Dario Argento episode, but the Cliff Notes version of this is Argento had come off of Suspiria and Inferno, and he wanted to finish up his Three Mothers trilogy. But I believe it was his dad who came to him and was like, hey, listen, Dario, like, no one is really connecting with these supernatural films, they want you to do giallos, They're not. these aren't making any money, why don't you go back and do a giallo, you can get more money for a giallo, no one's going to give you money to do your supernatural film that you want. So, he begrudgingly went back to giallos, and what we get is just a complete teardown of the genre, while still managing to not be like a parody or something, it is a full-on great giallo in its own right, while also taking shots at the genre as a whole, in a genre that Argento had helped to establish that I'm assuming felt like a monkey on his back, or, you know, he's being weighed down by the success of his past. Either way, Tenebrae is amazing, and if you haven't seen this one, you definitely need to check it out. It is top-tier Argento for me, I think so anyway. And it needs to be in the conversation with things like Suspiria and Deep Red, when it really isn't. But that is my take. And that's all for 1982. Let's shift over to 1983, and we've got Bloodlink, which I've never heard of, and The House of the Yellow Carpet, which just sounds ridiculous. I've never heard of that one either. And finally, you've got the Lamberto Bava Giallo, A Blade in the Dark, which... I didn't like initially, but upon rewatch, I really liked Blade in the Dark. I think it's a cool movie. It's not going to be... I don't think it's very similar at all to anything that his father did in the Giallo realm. But I think it definitely follows that pattern of earlier ones. I don't think it's anything new or revolutionary. But it's a really good solid Giallo in a time where we're not getting a lot of those. 1984, we have Murder Rock, which is another Fulci film... And I have not seen Murder Rock, so I don't can't tell you whether it's good or bad or whether I like it. I will probably see Murder Rock at some point, just haven't seen it yet. 1985, you've got a little bit of an uptick. We've got Formula for a Murder, which I haven't heard of. You've got a Spanish giallo called Black Octopus. And then you have a film called Nothing Underneath. In Nothing Underneath, which is directed by Carlo Venzina, you basically have... It's set in the world of modeling, and there's murders that are occurring within models. 
Um, you have a Yellowstone Park Ranger whose sister is in Italy, and he's worried about her, so he goes over there to figure out, you know, if she's okay, what's going on with her. And that's how this whole thing plays out. Now, you have Donald Pleasance in this, in a role. I really like Nothing Underneath. I think it is, this is where we're getting to just some really solid giallos in the 80s, where we don't have a lot of them, but some of the ones we're getting are really good. I do really like Nothing Underneath. I think it's definitely worth a watch. It's one of those that could really slip under your radar. But Vinegar Syndrome recently put out a double pack of this, and it's, I guess, pseudo-sequel. It's a good package, and the first film itself is really good. So I would definitely recommend Nothing Underneath. To those of you who maybe have seen a lot of Giallos, but maybe this one has flown under the radar for you. And I think it had, I mean, it flew under the radar for me for a while, too. But I just really liked Nothing Underneath when I watched it recently. And the last one in 85 is debatable, like I was talking about in an earlier segment, and that is Phenomena. And this is another Argento film that I think is just a lot of fun. Like, this is not Tenebra or something like that is going to be much more, I don't think it's as fun. But Phenomena is just full-on craziness, like Inferno style of fun, I think. And yeah, you do get the weird elements of, you know, there's bugs involved with this one. There's a, a monkey that works with Donald Pleasance in this one. And you have like a pretty awesome soundtrack that's going on as well. Uh, one word of caution. This is another one where you want to steer clear of the Creepers version of this movie. Creepers was the U.S. cut, and the way it's put together just does not make sense at all. I don't like Creepers at all. I think that might have been the first version I saw of this. Do not see Creepers if you can help it. Phenomena is where it's at. But I think that one goes without saying. It's another Argento film. Anything Argento put out in the 70s or 80s, it's a must-watch. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Thor Flies, but... I think it's still, you need to watch it at least once. That is Phenomena, which, again, can be argued whether it's a giallo or not. In 1986, we have The House of Blue Shadows. Haven't heard of it. Uh, the Killer is Still Among Us, which I've heard of, but I've never watched. Uh, same with The Old Die at Midnight, which I want to watch. The Monster of Florence, which sounds pretty interesting. Oh, and by the way, um, The Old Die at Midnight is another Lamberto Bava film. And then you have Ruggiero Deodato's Body Count. Now, I haven't seen a single one of these. I do want to see a couple of them and check them out. I'm curious about the title, The House of Blue Shadow, of the Blue Shadows, but haven't seen it yet. In 1987, we have one called Deliti. We have Sweets from a Stranger. We have the Lamberto Bava Delirium, which I'm not even going to attempt to read the subtitle. I think Ian did it well in an earlier message that he left. But we have, then we have two big hitters. Now, Delirium, I should say, I'm not a huge fan of Delirium, but I know a lot of people like that one. But we have the debut film of Michele Suave, and his first film was Stage Fright, or Aquarius. And Suave is... There will definitely be an episode coming up on Suave at some point. I think he's one of the more underrated Italian directors. And he only did one Giallo, but I think it was a pretty good one, and I think it... 
A lot of people like to call it a slasher because of the time it came out. I could see it where it mixes giallo and slasher, but I'm still going to categorize it here as a giallo. But anyway, where I was going with that is Suave was the actually the guy wearing the mask in Demons, handing out the tickets. So Suave was kind of working, I think this was Argento's attempt to take these younger directors and help to get their work known and move them into the light. He did the same with Demons for Lamperto Bava, and now he's doing it with Suave as well, trying to help Suave out. He would go on to do Stage Fright and then some really crazy supernatural films, The Church, um, The Sect, or The Devil's Daughter, and uh, Cemetery Man, which I think all four of his films are really good. I'm very upset that he never got to make any more, but Stage Fright is definitely one worth checking out, especially for you slasher fans if you haven't seen it yet, because there's a lot of slasher in that one. And finally, we have Argento's Opera, which is the last great Argento film. There would be some more good ones that come out for sure, but I think Opera is his last on that upper tier of Argento. And Opera is pretty crazy. You know, there's all the trademarks of Argento's movies in there with some new stuff moved in. Maybe it's a little faster paced. This is one of those ones where we get into, like with Stage Fright, people calling it a slasher, things like that. I don't necessarily think so. I think these types of movies are just the natural progression for the Giallo. It's getting in with the times, it's trying to keep up with stuff. I think it's just trying to take the Giallo and move it into a new era, even though it didn't necessarily make the trip over. But Opera is a fantastic film. I think it's absolutely worth seeing, and I think that one maybe gets pushed to the side a little bit too, the same with Tenebra, and, you know, it's not up there with people talk about all the time Bird with Crystal Plumage, they talk about Deep Red, they talk about Suspiria, I think people even talk about, like, Inferno and Phenomena more than this one, so Opera is definitely one to check out, it was the last gasp of the can't-miss Argento era, now again, I think he does some good stuff after this, but I think Opera is his last great one. In 1988, we have Phantom of Death. That is another Deodato film that I haven't seen. And then we have Too Beautiful to Die, which is the pseudo-sequel to Nothing Underneath. I can't recommend Too Beautiful to Die. I don't necessarily love it. I think the also that Vinegar Syndrome package I had earlier, I think the sound mixing on that is terrible for Too Beautiful to Die. The music's too loud, the voices are too low. I didn't have a good time with Too Beautiful to Die. There are probably people out there who will enjoy it, but that set's worth getting just for nothing underneath. Then you have Dial Help, which I never heard of, and Crimes and Perfume, which I've also never heard of. And finally, in 1989, we had a little bit of an uptick. We've got Massacre. We have an Umberto Lindsay film with Nightmare Beach. We've got Dangerous Women, Dark Bar, Arabella the Black Angel, American Rickshaw, and Fashion Crimes. Now, I haven't watched any of those. I've only heard of a couple of those. So 1989, yeah, it's pretty sparse for me anyway. Okay, let's hear from my good friend Nathan Bartleball here about the movie Stage Fright before we jump into the next segment 
on the 90s. Hey, Trey, and Screaming Through the Ages, this is Nathan Bartleball from the Phantom Galaxy podcast. I just wanted to drop a quick call and talk a little bit about uh, Giallo and one movie in particular that uh, there may be debate on whether it's actually a full-fledged Giallo or not. I kind of think it's maybe more in the middle of Slasher and Giallo, but uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, this episode. I've enjoyed the ones you've you've done so far regarding the topic, and I've taken this year really to dive into Giallo's because it's not, while I was aware of them and I'd seen one or two Bava films and one or two Argento films and uh, a Fulci here or there, the the genre itself is not something I was intimately familiar with. And even when it comes to Argento and Baba, there were many films that I hadn't seen. And so I've been working to rectify that. And more recently, while I was sick, I did sit down and watch uh, several, uh, I guess what you would consider uh, required Argento, a Bird with a Crystal Plumage, Deep Red, uh, Tenebra, and really, really enjoy them. And a couple more... Uh, obscure or maybe off the beaten track in giallos as well and during that process i came across uh, a film from the late 80s stage fright which goes by a couple different names it's also called aquarius it's also called deliria i think deliria may be the best possible title for this movie uh given given the film itself but i think stage fright kind of puts it in uh discussion and it puts it in mind stage fright puts it in mind of maybe more american slashers which i think is reasonable because that's one of the hallmarks i think of this particular film that while it is very very italian in the way that it presents itself in its imagery and its sort of dreamlike feel and and particularly when we get down to the imagery involving uh, the killer in this particular film that while all of that is very Italian, I do think the structure of stage fright has been designed in such a way that it is sort of aping American slashers much more closely, that there isn't really a central mystery. Once the killer appears, while their look is very... uh, while their look holds an element of mystery, the character themselves, uh, there's not a whodunit aspect to this, really. It's more of a, can we survive the night? How do we get out of this? And... Uh, we have a killer sort of stalking people one by one in a closed environment. And we have, uh, we definitely get some very theatrical imagery. I mean, this does involve a theater troupe who end up uh, sort of locked in their uh, in their stage overnight in the, uh, in the building where they're, they're doing their rehearsals. And they're stuck there with a killer who happens to be wearing a costume that plays into their musical that they're doing. And so there is a lot of theatricality here, and I think that that works really, really well. So what happens is by melding the two here, we have all the the, the more idiosyncratic elements that we would expect with a, a giallo, particularly surrealism and a dreaminess. The opening scene is sort of a musical number that suddenly has the killer just burst through uh, like a, a stage wall, like head first in an owl costume, which is just crazy. And it sets the tone for a movie that it feels like there's one foot in reality and one foot not. And what I love about the movie, though, is uh, this is directed by... Uh, Michael Suave, who went on to do 
uh, movies that I love, very surreal films. Um, primarily among them, Cemetery Man, which I think is one of the best horror movies of the 90s. Uh, and with this movie, you can see him kind of cutting his teeth. He was working with Argento previous to this, but this is his sort of directorial debut. And it has a lot of uh, style and confidence and... There are moments where you feel like you could just be watching a really long Duran Duran music video, but in some ways that's actually to this film's benefit because I think structurally it feels um, very much, as I mentioned, like a slasher, but then it has all of the rhythms and uh, textures that you associate with a giallo, and I think that's why this one stands out for me. and stands out, honestly, for me personally, like one of the better slashers of the 80s, even though I just recently saw it, so I had no prior nostalgia for it. But it's the way these scenes are set up, and the characters that are... We have a bunch of characters that are given basic traits, and some of them feel a little bit like stereotypes, but the way they, in which they work together, and the way in which they move towards trying to escape the situation together, I think really works. It feels, it feels kind of natural, it feels realistic, uh, but at the same time, there is a stylized dreaminess. And I honestly think that the level of ambiance here that's used, also with a killer, that, that owl costume is so striking, is so um, kind of iconic, uh, the, the, the owl holding the, the axe, that it's instantly kind of formidable the minute you see it, which is very much like the original Halloween when we see Michael Myers. And in a lot of ways, I think Stage Fright is a movie that uses its style just about as well as John Carpenter did in the original Halloween, and then what he does with everything else is keeps it very, very simple, very, very uh, austere and straightforward, and I think that that really helps the movie come into its own, and it's scary, it's very creepy. Uh, images at one point when the killer has sort of rearranged the stage to reflect all of the carnage that he's committed, and there are sort of feathers floating everywhere. These are weird images, and sometimes in, a, in some of the giallos, you get these weird images, and they don't feel like they're very tied together into the plot until maybe the last five or six minutes. And so there seems to be sometimes a feeling of convolution. I don't think the convolution is here, because, again, this movie's driving somewhere very specific, and a lot of it is sensory, and a lot of it is visceral, and I think having a simple thriller plot holds it all together in a way that maybe some of the giallos take a while to get to. So I think Suave took two things and melded them together and came out with something that's both unique and a, a high watermark for the genre, if I'm honest. I, I know I've heard many people mention this movie over the years, but I'm surprised that I haven't heard a little bit more about it because it's really, really good. I definitely slept on this one, and uh, I'm glad to have remedied that. Uh, Trey, you are, you're the person who recommended it to me, so... Thanks for that. I really enjoyed it, and I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what everybody else thinks about the GLs, because I'm very much a student when it comes to this particular subgenre. So, I love the show. Looking forward to everything you have coming up. Alright, thanks so much for sending that in, Nathan. I really appreciate the deep dive on Stage Fright, and I'm glad you ended up liking it after I recommended it to you. Also glad to hear of your journey of digging back into GLs or digging deeper and I hope you'll continue that because there's a lot of good stuff out there that I think you'd like, even if there's, you know, equally the amount that you won't. You can find Nathan over on the Phantom Galaxy podcast where he has about 15 different podcasts that live within that feed. And Nathan's doing a lot of good stuff over there. And also you can check him out several times on this show, including the most recent one where we sat down and put together our top 15 kaijus and went into the movie Paul Gasari that released a little earlier this month. So 
check Nathan out wherever he is, and thank you again for calling in. Alright, we're going to move on to the Giallos of the 1990s now as we race towards the end of our Giallo timeline. I'm not sure that it was a good idea to work in the museum. What kind of lunatic could be responsible for this? So the 90s were very sparse as far as giallos go. I mean, I'm just going to talk about this is going to be a very short segment. I'll tell you that right now because it's just so sparse. Um, In 1990, I've got nothing. In 1991, I've got Homicide in Blue Light, which I've never heard of. Um, skip ahead to 92, and we've got Body Puzzle by Lamberto Bava. Then you have one called Circle of Fear, which I've never heard of. And to be clear, I do want to see Body Puzzle, but I'm having a hard time finding Body Puzzle. So maybe one day I'll be able to seek it out and find it somewhere, but I think last time I looked, I was having issues finding it. So we'll see if that changes or not. In 1993, we had Argento's Trauma, which I think is a huge step down for Argento. I mean, this comes after Two Evil Eyes, which I think is a step down from opera. So Argento is taking a little bit of a dip here. I like Trauma to an extent. I've only seen it once, um, so maybe I need to re-see it. But it's definitely on the lower end of the Argento stuff. Not as bad as some of what we'd get later, but still. We've got The Washing Machine by, I believe, Deodato as well. I haven't seen that one, but it sounds ridiculous. I do want to check that out. Um, you've got Dangerous Attraction and Madness. Now, Dangerous Attraction sounds like one of those um, erotic thrillers that were coming out at the time. So, I don't know about that one. 1994, we have Murder by Telephone, which I've never heard of. 95, we have The Strange Story of Olga O, which... Again, never heard of. And you have The Killer's the One with the Yellow Shoes, which have not heard of. This is, uh, you see what we're getting here in the 90s. I mean, it's pretty much almost all dried up. In 1996, we have The House Where Corianne Lived and Fatal Frames. I haven't heard of either of those. Fatal Frames sounds interesting. I'm sure that involves a camera of some sort, so I might check that one out if I can. Then we have the Stendhal Syndrome in 96 as well. And I want to tie the Stendhal Syndrome into something with 1997, which is the wa- which is Wax Mask, not the Wax Mask, just Wax Mask. So Stendhal Syndrome is an Argento film, 
and it's pretty good. I think the first half is really good. The second half kind of goes off the rails a little. I still like it a lot, and it's a step up from Trauma for sure. But the interesting thing with the Stendhal Sodrum is in 94, Fulci, Lucio Fulci's health was getting pretty bad. And Argento saw this, and I'm sure they had to have at least spoken at the time at some point, but he saw this and he wanted to help Fulci make a new film. They started coming up with an idea. Fulci wanted to do a remake of Wax Museum. the how What would be the mystery of the Wax Museum or House of Wax or one of those, um, any of those adaptations. But that's what he wanted to do. So they started working on that, and I think Fulci still gets a story credit for that one. But it took longer than anticipated because Argento was also working on the Stendhal Syndrome at the same time. So what ended up happening is Fulci would pass away in 96. Due to this, Argento went ahead and pegged special effects artist Sergio Stivaletti to direct the film. And that's how we get with wax that's what we get with Wax Mask. Now I like Wax Mask. I think it's a cool film. It's very bloody and gory, and it's definitely a different take on Mystery of the Wax Museum or House of Wax, whatever you want to know it by. But that's that's one to maybe check out. That's a little under the radar. I believe Severin put out a release of that one. So I like the wax mask. 1999 is the last one I have for the 90s here, and that is Milonga. So none in 1998. You've got Milonga in 1999, which I've never heard of. So that's really it for the 1990s with Giallo's. I'm going to go ahead and move into the next segment, which was recommended by Bill Van Vegel over from Phantom Galaxy and Land of the Creeps. And Bill basically said, you know, you could talk about are Giallo's horror or are they not? And I think that's a good question. I think this came up last year when I said something like, you know, if you're not going to count Last Night in Soho as a horror then you probably can't count Giallo's or other films in that vein as horror. And it never crossed my mind that people don't consider Giallo films horror movies, but I get it, I get it. So I'm going to go into a little bit of why I think they do qualify as horror. It may be not as evident in some cases, but it's a really tough question. I think first and foremost it's easy to say stuff like Bay of Blood and Opera and Phenomena are horror movies. I think those are easy. I think Tenebrae is easy to say that it's a horror movie. I think you can easily say something like what I just talked about with the Wax Mask or Stendhal Syndrome are horror movies. A lot of the bigger giallos are pretty straight-ahead horror movies. When you talk about something like The Girl Who Knew Too Much, I think that would count as a Hitchcock-type thriller. I've always considered it a horror movie because there is some darker stuff in there. But I can see if you didn't want to include that in your listing because uh, people go one way or another on Hitchcock movies as well. You know, Psycho and The Birds are often talked about as horror movies. I don't think Frenzy is a lot of the times, but I think Frenzy is a horror movie. So I would for sure say there's a line there, especially with things like What Have They Done to Your Daughters, where you could be like, ah, I don't know, or The Bloodstained Butterfly, where you could say these are crime thrillers and things like that. But I think it comes into the same perspective of 
do you think thrillers or horror movies, which Land of the Creeps recently went over? And I think a lot of the times you can tell if it's a darker thriller. I've always just lumped giallos into horror, and I think that's I think my point would stand in a lot of those cases where I think they are horror because you're getting a lot of the, you know, you're getting murders, you're getting darker elements, and yes, they're crime films, but they're very dark crime films. Like, you're not going to watch a film about the mob and just see people cutting someone down with piano wire or something like that. And you get that a lot of times in Giallo's. I don't think it's something where you can, even though I kind of have in the past, I mean, I counted something like The Laughing Woman as a horror movie, which I think that maybe has more of a case than some others, but... Either way, I don't think it's a black and white answer. I think there are plenty of elements of horror when you have the the suspense and the mystery and you put that together with these murders and these stock and slash kind of kills. And some of these scenes are pretty tense um, leading up to deaths. So I think a lot of Giallo would easily fall within horror. I think some you make a harder case for, but I've typically just counted them all. I'd love to know what other people think. Is it a giallo horror? Is it a thriller? Is it neither one? Is it just its own thing? I don't know. I've always seen it as, you know, close to what slashers are as they're just horror movies. But that's my opinion. But I feel like at this point, I'm just talking in circles. So let's go ahead and move on to the last section of years here, where I will be covering from 2001 to 2022 and talk about some neo gialli
So unfortunately at this point, the releases are far and few between. Now what I want to do is my listing only listed uh, these handful of films. I mean, I mean, it looks just like only 15 of these from 2001 through 2022. But I do have a handful of other examples that I've always heard in the you know, Neo Gialli category and stuff like that. So let me go through these ones. And then I'll go through some other examples that maybe for some reason they don't think fit within Giallo. And I will give a few first-time watch reviews. So in 2001, we kick it off with Sleepless. And Sleepless is one that I have always enjoyed. I think it is Argento's best post-opera as far as his film releases. It has Max von Sydow in it and... I think it's one that's overlooked a lot of the time, but Sleepless is a really good movie. I like it as a giallo. I like it as this detective story. You know, maybe you're getting some of that early aughts, you know, edge thrown into it, but you can forgive that, I think, for a little bit and settle in with Sleepless because that's one that, like I said, if you've missed it, I think that's a pretty good one. 2003, we have two I've never seen in Red Riding Hood and Bad Inclination. Never even heard of those ones. 2004, we have Eyes of Crystal, which, I mean, sounds intriguing enough. The Vanity Serum, which, again, sounds intriguing. And The Card Player, which is another Argento film. And you'll find that most of these are Argento films as we go through post-2000. 2005, we get another Argento film with Do You Like Hitchcock? And then keep that Argento train rolling with 2009's Giallo starring um, Adrian Brody. In 2010, we are done with Argento for a while, and we've got Symphony in Blood Red, which I've never heard of. In 2011, we have The Last Fashion Show, which, I mean, seems interesting to me. In 2013, we have Sono Profondo. 2015 is Francesca, which I wanted to watch for this episode, but I just couldn't get to it. So I really do want to check out Francesca and see what that's all about. 2018 is Abracadabra, and that is with an intercapitalized K. Interesting there. 2019 is Knife Plus Heart, which is one I still haven't seen. I had that on the list to get through for this episode as well, but never got to that one. So I know a lot of people like that one. And in 2022, we have Dario Argento's Dark Glasses, which I will be doing a first view review on. So to set this one up a little bit, we have the synopsis that reads, Diana, a high-class prostitute trying to escape from a serial killer, suffers a car accident that leaves her blind and kills the family of Chin, a 10-year-old boy. Well, that's pretty basic, but yeah, we have a string of prostitutes who are being murdered, and we get introduced to Diana, and start to see a little of her life, but when she is chased by the killer and gets into that aforementioned car accident, loses her sight, and she kind of has to live life in a new way, and, you know, also live with the guilt of what she did to Chin's family. So, that's what we have with Dark Glasses. It is very much a giallo. It's very much a modern day type giallo with new modern sensibilities, but it's not really changed up too much. 
I was very pleasantly surprised with dark glasses. I was seeing, you know, this has been something that people have been seeing throughout the year. I think it's been at some festivals and stuff. And basically what people were saying was, it's not awful, but it's not great. I think, you know, this is really Argento getting back to form. And back in the best film that he's made since Sleepless, I think. You have to give him credit because he's, you know, in his 80s making this movie. And it turns out to be pretty good. I mean, I like it a lot. It combines a lot of elements from many of his previous films, or at least I thought so. And it doesn't really do the, which, I mean, giallos, anytime you get these neo-giallos, that's mainly what are making them giallos, or is they're trying to do the style of giallos and the lighting of giallos and everything like that. Argento basically says, throw that out the door. We're going to focus on a story. We're going to get some good characters and a good story and go from there. And I think it delivers in spades on that promise. It's almost like, get back to the basics and let's get that story out there. We'll worry about a style later. And it does have a certain style to it. It's not the greatest style, but I think that that was a big part of why I like this, is the story is good and the characters are likable. He also has his daughter here who I didn't really recognize. I didn't re- I didn't recognize her at all. It's been a long time since I've seen Aja Argento in a movie. So it was a bit of a shock when I was trying to pick out who her character was. And I also will say, I don't think this is as violent as some of Argento's other films, but it doesn't necessarily need to be. It's really good, solid film, and I think that any Argento fan should check this one out. And Giallo fans as well. I think there's a lot to like in this one. And if you're newer to Giallos, I mean, this is a newer entry in the series, or in the um, genre, that's easier to maybe get into with a from a barrier standpoint. But I think Dark Glasses is a solid movie. It's not going to blow anyone away, I don't think. But it's a good, solid genre outing from Argento. Okay, let's go up into some other Neo Gialli. And we've got a film called Tulpa, which I do want to see and haven't seen yet. And then we've got a film called Piercing, which came out several years ago. And I think that's a really cool stylized film. I don't know if it's quite a giallo, but I think it's in the vein of giallo. And it's definitely one that I like. You have two I don't like with Barbarian Sound Studio, which is definitely more of that ode to the filmmaking in giallos. And the same thing with the editor. I don't like either one of those hardly at all, really. I don't, I didn't find any enjoyment in those. I know a lot of people did. I just, they were never really for me. So then you've got Amir and Strange Color of Your Body's Tears. Now, I have not seen Amir, but I have seen The Strange Color of Your Body's Tears. I saw that for the first time recently. I'm going to be honest, I had to turn that movie off because I just, did not like it at all. It wasn't doing it for me. I, you know, I get the style and everything else was there, but there was no substance to that film at all for me. It was just kind of all over the place, very non-linear, didn't make sense at all, and I didn't like what they were doing. I also didn't like, you know, Let the Corpses Tan, which is this duo's other film that they did later, not a giallo, but um, I just don't like their filmmaking style, and 
anything like that. I don't think I would check out a mare. I, I might, but I don't know. Um, so I was going to do the Strange Color of Your Body's Tears for a first-time review, but I couldn't even make it all the way through that one. I was like, no, there's better things to watch. So I know a lot of people like um, those last three that I mentioned that I didn't like, but that's just my opinion. And the last review I want to do for this episode is of Cold Hell from 2018. So in Cold Hell, which was directed by Stefan Ruzowitski, a young Vienna-based taxi driver of Turkish origin witnesses an extremely brutal murder. The perpetrator, a serial killer, makes eye contact with her. A deadly game of cat and mouse ensues. So this is an Austria and German co-production. And again, it's about a Turkish taxi driver. This one has all the main elements of a giallo with all the style and stuff. And there's this, again, cat and mouse game with someone who saw a murder and the murderer themselves. It gets a little close to home at some point. And I think a big difference in this one than a lot of other giallos is our main character. I mean, she's tough. She's a boxer. She does all this other stuff. So when, again, it hits close to home, she goes on the hunt and is trying to find this killer who has had victims kind of spread throughout Eastern Europe for over the span of like some years, I think. I can't remember exactly on that part. But yeah, she's not going to sit idly by and take her abuse. So it's similar to something like the Stendhal Syndrome or other movies like that. But I just think Cold Hell is a really cool movie. I think it's a really stylish movie. And then it's just a lot of fun to watch. I mean, it's a brutal film in ways for sure. But it does feel like a return to form for these giallos, even though this is an Italian-made film and it's not done really. I mean, there's some odes to giallos for sure, but you could also say maybe it's film noir or things like that. But for me, it's a giallo, it's a neo-giallo, and it's really the best one of the bunch as far as the ones I've talked about here. And that's my opinion, of course, but that's my two cents on Cold Hell. Absolutely go out and watch it if you haven't. I don't know why I waited so long to see it, but I did, and I'm glad I finally saw it. Okay, so that is it for the breakdown of the history of Jaws, or at least the year-by-year, blow-by-blow of it. Anyway, many of these films, if not a vast majority, I will be going deeper into on future episodes in the years to come. There will absolutely be an Argento episode. There will absolutely be some kind of Michele Suave episode, Mario Bava episode, where I will dig deeper into the directors themselves and the movies themselves. So that will definitely be something in the future and for another day, but I hope you did enjoy going by year and breaking down all of the giallas that have been around since 1963. So for the final segment, I'm going to go ahead and dig into my top 25 giallos. Now I have seen at this point 60 giallo, I believe, or 59, I might be just short of 60. And in true fashion, I am putting together a top 25 list, as I do with my year-end list. And really, 
I mean, even if you don't hear your favorites on this list, just know that I really like about 42 of these movies. And, I mean, really like, like, <laughs> I would give like a, a six and a half or seven and above um, of like 42 of the Giallos that I've seen out of like 60. So that gives you an idea of how much I love Giallos. So if there's something that's not on the top 25, I mean, like Dark Glasses I just talked about is just on the outside of the top 25 and wouldn't make that list. But I still have a long way to go with about, you know, maybe I would like to get to double of what I've seen at least. So hopefully I'll get there one day. But for right now, I'm counting down the top 25. So number 25, we have a Blade in the Dark. And again, I've probably said about everything I need to say on these, so I will just be running down the list. Number 24, I have the Lindsay film Seven Bloodstained Orchids. At number 23, I have The Suspicious Death of a Minor. Number 22, The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave. Number 21, All the Colors of the Dark. Number 20 is Sleepless. For number 19, I have Stage Fright or Aquarius. Number 18 is Nothing Underneath. Number 17 is The Cat of Nine Tales, which kind of took a little bit of a fall recently, but that's okay. It's still a very solid film. Number 16 is The Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion. Number 15 is The Bloodstained Butterfly. Number 14 is The Red Queen Kills Seven Times. Number 13 is The Psychic. Number 12 is Torso. Number 11 is The Laughing Woman. Number 10 is The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Number 9 is What Have They Done to Your Daughters. Number 8 is The Girl Who Knew Too Much. Number 7 is The House with the Laughing Windows. Number 6 is What Have You Done to Solange. Number five is Opera. Number four is Blood and Black Lace. And the top three should come as no surprise that they are Argento films, and that is Phenomena. Number two, Tenebrae. Number one, Deep Red. So it gets a little predictable in the top five. I mean, it's all Bob and Argento. There's a lot of that stuff in there, but any one of those movies is well worth checking out, and those are my favorite giallos. Now, there are a ton of other ones that I recommend as well, but looking at this here, it looks like I even had three of these that were the first-time watches that I've done for these last two episodes make the top 25, so that's pretty cool. Now, this is subject to change, um, especially in that middle territory, I think, you know, between The Girl Who Knew Too Much and... Uh, the Red Queen Kills Seven Times, I think all of those are very much like neck and neck. I think those can be pretty much interchangeable from 8 to 14. But other than that, I mean, just to close out, I really want to say thank you to everyone who has tuned into these episodes. I've had a lot of fun doing these in the Kaiju episodes and stuff. I'm just in a segment of doing episodes about stuff that I love. And that's going to change, not necessarily not things that I don't love, but we're going to have to change to things that I'm not sure about, honestly. 
I will be embarking on, with the next set of episodes, some franchise reviews of smaller, lesser-known franchises or lesser-talked-about franchises, really. And these I'm going to keep a mystery. I'm not going to necessarily tell you what the episodes are going to be about, but I will be starting with a franchise that started in the 80s, one that started in the 90s, and one that started in the aughts. And I will do reviews for all of those in that series, as well as do a breakdown of the series themselves for any information that I do have. And I'll do a few of those episodes, and then we will move on to something else. But that is what you have in store once I get out of October. Now, I still have another episode coming out for Halloween, which is just a short bonus episode on something I really found interesting, and that is the mystery of Crybaby Lane. And I also tell some personal ghost stories in there, or a ghost story in there. But again, thank you all for listening to this and all of my October episodes so far. I really hope there are some non-Giallo fans or people who haven't dug as deep into Giallos, and I hope you find some and go out there and try them out, and hope you enjoy them. But I think there's Giallos out there for almost every horror fan. You just have to find the right one. In closing on this, I do want to plug, I was on a recent LOTC, or Land of the Creeps, episode, talking about the you know, movies that we love that other people hate or don't like. And that was a lot of fun, so you can check that out on the LOTC feed. I also jumped on an episode of Father and Son Watch Horror to talk about Halloween Ends. And before we wrap up here, I am going to actually announce the winners of the Red Queen Kill Seven Times and... The What Have You Done to Solange Blu-ray, there will be one that will go to two different people. So someone will get one, someone will get the other. Um, I'll draw for both. If you, by chance, if you won and you have these or don't want them, um, just let me know and I will push it on to another person, do another drawing for it, and give that out to someone else. So, and remember, I had put multiple entries in here for anyone who had participated in all the multiple aspects of this. Okay, so first up for the What Have You Done to Solange Blu-ray from Arrow. It looks like it is number one, and that will go to Will from Shapes and Shadows. So, Will, congratulations. I will be getting that out to you soon. If you don't already have it and you do want it, just let me know. Just uh, send me a message or whatever. All right, so let's change up the generator here and generate another number for the Red Queen Kills Seven Times giveaway. And that goes to number 16, which is Amanda Lee. So, Amanda, if you are listening, let me know if you would like the Red Queen Kills Seven Times Blu-ray and where to send it, and I will get that out to you as well. So thank you so much for participating in that, whether it's leaving a call here or uh, spreading the word on Twitter or, you know, letting me know what your favorite giallos were. I really appreciated hearing from everyone on that. It is time to wrap this baby up. So in closing, you can find the podcast on Twitter at Screaming Ages. 
I also have a Facebook group over on, you know, Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. And have an email you can reach out to at ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. There's a phone number if you want to leave a voice. And that is 740-297-6556. All the episodes are housed over on ScreamingThroughTheAges.com. And as always, I'd appreciate it if you liked the episode, if you spread it to your friends or any other horror fans that you think would enjoy it. I know this isn't for everyone, but I'm enjoying what I'm doing, and I enjoy all of you out there that are liking this podcast and giving me feedback on it. I always appreciate that. So until next time, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson.